Dieser Originals. Trailblazers. Hello, my name's Eddie Temple Morris, and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of dance music's most luminescent luminaries. In these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season, and any normal episode would see Nick and I talk to a dance music legend, but for this one, we go all inception on you and examine the podcast within the podcast, the Trailblazer inside Trailblazers, as Portishead's turntable wizard Andy Smith and I open up the vinyl box that is Nick Hawkes' life. The main thing we'd like to both point out is that this was recorded before our dear mutual friend Keith Flint took his own life, so it helps to imagine dear Keith still bouncing around and leering at us from stage left when you listen to this one. Trailblazers. A renowned A&R guy, label boss, producer, artist, DJ, and brilliant music podcast co-host by public demand. It's Nick Hawks, and uh, and and here to help me, and here to help me is Portishead's legendary DJ and author of my co-favorite mix album ever, The Document, and Nick's childhood buddy and DJ partner from Reach Up, DJ Andy Smith. Hello, thank you. Amazing! How brilliant this is. This is so we must stress that this is by public demand this was what this you know it's a, few a bit people. odd Eddie it's a bit odd me being this side of the table I'm well a, I, I think this is wonderful because you know like I, I say being here as well to be quite honest <laughs> I, well I, I think this is double wonderful because we get to we've we, by public demand we've quite rightly had people say well Eddie, why don't, you, why don't you do Nick? You know, he's a total dance music legend. And then we managed to get Andy Sketch. Smith from said through the back door. I've skidded <laughs> in through the back door here, haven't I? <laughs> I feel a bit bad about uh, that. But, I you know, so. absolutely love it. <laughs> Thank well, you I mean, for inviting me on your wonderful show. Well, mate, you know, with, with uh, I... I, I you know, I sort of pressured Nick into into inviting you because oh, I just thought, you? I just thought, yeah, I, I just thought that there can't be anybody in the world better to help me interview Nick than someone who's known him since he was ten years old. We've known each other a fair while, yes, <laughs> as he said. So, um, the Andy, the normal way that we start Trailblazers is that I do the big intro, which has been done, and uh, and then Nick fires the first question. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's not going to happen, Andy. Why don't you fire the first question in? Okay, well, all of all those things you said that Nick's done and I've probably got extra things on here as well he's had such a, an amazing career of uh, many different aspects of uh, of his career I, I mean can you say the thing of all those things that has been the biggest thing for you or is there just is there just so many different big things it changes as the years go by I suppose what the biggest thing is so I mean I mean since I kind of properly had a career in music obviously we'll probably talk about before then but yeah. I suppose it was yeah I mean the first big thing was was just being able to work in the industry itself and just the ability to maybe get some money in in exchange for promoting records or whatever yeah. and then the next big thing would have been Ah, uh, yeah, my first hit record um, yeah. and on City Beat. Then the next big thing would have been probably, you know, launching XL Recordings and coming up with the, the sort of vision behind that, I guess. And then, I mean, and so it goes on, you know, and, and yeah. launching Positiva was probably another big one. All the Prodigy stuff has been... You know, as I thought, so many big things yeah. along the way. Nothing <laughs> you can just say that's the one. Because and there's still more, I'm sure, for you to. Well, hopefully, still, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. yeah. Well, can, can I replace the word "big" mm. with um, th- with with more like a, a touchy feely question, which is yeah. you know looking back on your incredible mm. career, you know mm. which which part of it 
uh, like I say, without big or small. Which yeah. part of it did you do you? Which part of it do you look back on and think, "Gosh, I'm so proud of that." It's a difficult question to yeah to... because I mean I am I'm proud of lots of it and and, and uh, lots of things that I've been involved with and I've enjoyed lots you know and I really try every day to make sure that I enjoy what I do and I every day I'm thankful for for what I do so it's difficult. I mean, there's certainly been some special moments. I mean, one of the tracks that we're going to play later was my sort of first hit record that I signed, and that was a that was a really big thing. Just kind of, you know, sort of. Uh, I suppose maybe it was almost like a bit of validation from like the industry or the public or whatever. So actually, you sort of do know what you're doing. You can have a hunch that something can be successful. And look, here's the evidence in the charts. It's in the top ten. And I assume you were trying to do that for quite a while before you got something that really hit home? Ah, let's have a think. I mean, not for too long, I suppose. No. Um, I mean, I suppose it it, kind I think that... It depends how you look at that, Andy. So I suppose that the time span between being in a position where I could sign hit records and having my first top ten wasn't that long. So that kind of came about fairly swiftly. But I think that, you know, before I got into a position where I could sign records... There were so many years of, of, of preparation and build up to it. So, so all that, the, yeah. the stuff that you and I were doing when we were kids, or yeah. the stuff I was doing when I was at uni, you know, or in my summer breaks from uni, where we can talk about this. I worked in New York one summer, I worked in Ibiza in the summer of 1988 doing stuff, and all of that probably kind of built up, I think, towards. You know, maybe that first hit record that I signed, and maybe all yeah. of that probably built up to so ev- everything else. For a long time, to well, do I, that. yeah, I, I think I just—I mean, it, it, I think when I left, no, when I was at uni, I kind of thought that my career would either be in radio, interestingly, or uh-huh. in records. Um, and it probably depended on what kind of opportunity presented itself. And I think if around the time I left uni, if, if for example, I'd have been offered a junior record, lab, uh, re- record library assistant job at Capital or something, then maybe I'd have dug into radio and perhaps mm. pursued a career as a broadcaster or radio producer or something like that. But the first proper gig that I got offered post-uni um, was working for a club promotion company called Secret Promotions. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of mailing out, um, re- you know, sticking thousands of, of vinyl records in, in envelopes. You mailed some to me. Did I? Did <laughs> I? Oh, oh, all right, OK. Well, all right, okay. Well, a, bit, a bit of Massive Attack probably in that era or um, something. Turntable Orchestra. Yeah, Turntable Orchestra. Phase 2 reaching, maybe yeah. some of those records. Yeah, yeah. That's it. So I was doing all that and Double Trouble, Rebel MC, I remember. Yeah. Um, and uh, where, where were we going? That was like the first <laughs> gig. I can't remember. Well, well I, I, just one observation is that Nick, you are such a perfect well, music <laughs> manager type mm. like while you were explaining that while it, I, I was watching this Andy like, just while he was going but, you know, between the time that I got into the music, music industry and I had my first hit he drew an arrow on the, on, the, on the page in front of it and then he drew another arrow and then put a circle around it while he was talking absolutely you know, you're, it's like you're doing a, you're doing a flow chart or something while you're talking to us it's uh, communicating verbally 
and uh, and uh, figuratively. Yeah. But let's, um, let's... <laughs> That's quite funny because I didn't actually realise I was doing, doing that at the time. But of course I did and I, I, now, I now can indeed see the two arrows in the circle. And it probably was me like, right, how do we get a grip on this situation? Which of course is what I do as, a, as an artist manager. So yeah, basically these days, you know, Liam Howlett's a prodigy, Stanton mm. Warriors, Bad Com- Company, UK, one bit. You know, I'm, a, I'm an artist manager primarily. And, and I guess a lot of what I do on a daily basis is people ask me questions or they say, right, how do we sort this out or how do you want to address this complex situation? Yeah. And then I'm probably like thinking, right, I need to try and what are the key yes. issues? And what's- You're the best problem solver <laughs> that I know for anything at all. Really? Yeah, if you're out on the night out and there's a bit of a problem with, I don't know, getting a cab or whether we're going to go here, you just sort it out. You just <laughs> take all the things that need to be sorted out, process them in your mind, and then it's done. And then it flows on. Yeah. Although I do, and which actually probably, it started early, but I remember it kind of pissed me off that people viewed me in that light at an early age. Because I remember, maybe not when we were at school together, but when I was at uni, like, I'd go out with a group of nine people. Did this happen when we were kids? I don't know. But I'd go out with a group of, like, nine people. We'd all be in central London on a Saturday night or something, and everybody looks at me like... Where are we going? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I can't, I can't get nine people in for free to some random club, but I can, I can maybe get two in on the guest list, and yeah. then if you want to split, you know, six are going to have to pay, and yeah. maybe you can split the whatever. But there was, there was that sort of people looked at me to sort stuff out like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, did that happen when we were fifteen, sixteen? Mm, not so much, I don't think. No, that maybe, maybe developed, yeah, you know, a little wrong. bit later. Mm. But yeah. well, let's let's let's. Let's rewind the clock back to yeah. way pre-16, because I happen to know that you two chaps met each other before music was even a part of your lives. When Indeed. you were nine or ten years old, you were in short shorts at school, I presume, when you guys met. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is, so let's rewind to, Before. like, what, mid-70s in, in, uh, in Portishead? I, I believe it was the uh, 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 school year of 76, 77. I don't know whether uh, you came in 76 or 77. Okay. And... Uh, Mrs. Scully, our teacher, mm. sat you by me and mm. said, "Here's a new boy sitting mm. next to Andrew." Was it? Mm-hmm. And um, and we just became friends. And yeah, as as I said to you earlier on, Eddie, this was very much pre-music. We we were into football. Yeah, I had a train set. I yeah. was into train sets <laughs> yeah. and we play football. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so music wasn't on the agenda at all then, was it? Well, you say it wasn't, but... Well, it was around it in the was background. A, it was around and in the background. I mean, funnily enough, the way the arc of this show is you, you Eddie you, or, or me, traditionally asked the guest, yeah, so what was the first piece of music that... that kind of had an impact on you and that that piece of music I'm going to choose for this show was before we yes, met yes, it was I've before noticed. we met but but you're right it wasn't a, it certainly wasn't at the forefront of our friendship at the no. you know that when we met yeah kicking a football around in the garages and much of I, the day I, match, match, I wasn't into the whole train set thing but um no. uh, <laughs> but, but yeah it was it was it was it was football and yeah, and stuff like that. And then there was a crossover point, funnily enough, which has a record uh, attached, where, where Andy and I crossed sort of interest, core interest, out of football and into music. But we're skipping ahead. I don't know whether... Yeah, yeah, do, you yeah, want, we should, do you want the let, first bit of music? The, the yeah, let's, let's... Well, let's... I want to know whether your that first record is, Nick. Yeah. And also, I, I kind of want to know, Andy, what your... What your Response yes. to that would be what, what your first record would have been. That yeah, because be mine would have been a bit later. Nick, yeah. you better go first. All right, all right. So the 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 first record 
that I remember having an impact on me was Teenage Rampage by The Sweet. I don't know whether you remember that. Absolutely, record. yeah. yeah. And, and that was before I moved to Porter's Head. Oh. So I was living in Loughborough at the time, um, and so really young. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't just that the record... Um, impacted on me by seeing this sort of glam rock band on top of the pops and purchasing the seven inch single at Loughborough Market. It actually had a bit of sort of showbiz sizzle connected with it at that very early age, unbelievably. Because my brother used to do security sometimes at Loughborough University and um, Sweet had a gig there. And my brother said, I was way too young to go to a gig. I must have been six, seven or something like this. (laughs) Um, But he said, I tell you what, he knew I was into sort of, you know, some of this pop music stuff that I'd seen on on TV or whatever. And he said, oh, I'll tell you what, we can go down and you can kind of hang around and at least have a look at like where this concert is going to happen um which i was like you know at four in the after after school at four thirty in the afternoon or something like that which i thought was kind of him and uh, so he took me down to loughborough uni um and quite amazingly we, we didn't go into the venue or see a sound check but we just sort of hung around outside and and I, I, check, I fact-checked this with my brother only a couple of days ago. We both remember a sort of black limo sort of turning up or, or, or departing, one of the two, either before or after sound check, with various sort of members of suites either getting in or going out. Um, and there was just a little sizzle of, ooh, these are the the stars, these are the pop stars, kind of, and they've got a cool car and sort of it's still like got tinted windows and stuff. There's something yeah. a bit exciting and glamorous going on here. Um, so, but that, you know, didn't get an autograph, whatever, didn't chat to the guys, but just sort of saw them fleetingly. So I kind of had that little tiny touch of there's a gig, these guys have got a cool car, there's something in this. So you saw the something relationship in between this. music and, you know, and, uh, great lifestyle. Maybe and all that. I and did. The, you know, mm. so that I guess that must have sown a, a tiny a little, seed, a little, a little acorn. seed. A something little you've seed. never seen before. You've never no. seen stars so close, no. I guess. Uh, not really, no. No. Yeah. So, so yeah, exactly. Well, well, with that in mind, let's let's play this record and remind ourselves of uh, that very silly hair. And that, that <laughs> You're talking <great>. about me? <laughs> or the sweet hair? The sweet and the, okay. Okay. You haven't confess to what your hairstyle was like in those okay, days but okay. I bet it pretty, was pretty curly <laughs> pretty curly and large all right so let's with that in mind let's let's listen to this and, and think of that acorn that was planted trailblazers Teenage Rampage, the sweet and effective musical acorn planted into the mind of Nick Hawkes, who is normally the co-host and this week the guest by popular demand. And uh, we're with DJ Andy Smith, Portishead's legendary DJ and uh, Nick's childhood friend. I thought, you know, perfect, perfect co-host for this. So um, I want to know, actually, Andy, I'm going to bring you into this. Like, what, w- what would have been your... I'd be interested to, to a crate digger like you. You're, you're basically the English DJ shadow. Uh, I, I, you know, what would be what would have been your kind of 
know, the, the first tune that you were sort of aware of in your well, life. Well, I was certainly a bit later than Nick uh, with the suite there, uh, although the, the story does kind of relate to Nick, uh, bizarrely, is that we, we were on a coach going on a trip to Naplock Farm, so you remember it. I do. Uh, and the radio was on and the, the I think the Top 40 was on, so maybe we were going on a Sunday evening, I'm not sure. But uh, but I remember, and I was aware of, you know, uh, you know big hits of the time, but they just didn't really mean anything to me. And I remember the charts being on and I was probably talking, I don't think I was sat next to Nick, but I was ch- chatting to somebody else. And then suddenly, Ian during the blockheads, What a Waste came on. Yes. And I actually stopped talking and listened to the speaker above my head and thought, this sounds so different than everything we've been listening to up until this point in terms of his delivery and his funky tune as well. And, 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 and that record just made me think, this music thing is actually, is actually quite exciting in, in a way that I'd never thought of before. Yeah. So that was the, the catalyst track for me. So, a bit later than Nick. Yeah, okay. Well, so then, um, you know, after your, 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 you never grew out of football, you still play football. Yeah, I do. You still, still play football. Five side most but, weeks, yeah. So <laughs> when, did, when did music become a, a, a thing in your life? And I'm presuming that it ha- would have happened at a similar time in well, both your I, lives. I think it happened at the same time. Yes, yes. Yeah, so... so I, I think the thing, when we were at school, we, we gravitated quite quickly towards club music of the time disco essentially and I think we were the only two kids in the whole school that was re- were really aware of this club music yeah until yeah. we met maybe our mate Gary was into jazz but yeah. you know there was so we kind of we were together on our own crusade weren't we really uh, yeah we were so I mean you know we were aware of pop music of the time and, and we had a I think we both had a few sort of different phases you know a, d- a dabble with the heavy metal area Maybe, uh, yeah. you know uh, I love the two tone yeah, thing yeah. and all of that and Mad you used to swap tapes in those days yeah. a lot of people that you'd swap tapes definitely you? there was, there was a lot stuff. there was a lot of that yeah um, but I think the the, yeah, the 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 crossover point between football being the core passion and music being the core passion. I didn't really plan to play this record, but I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It was was um, well, there was a couple of records around that time actually, and we we basically I remember we were at and in Andy's bedroom and um, we we stumbled across yeah. um, uh, a, a DJ called Al Matthews who's on Radio One. Um, in the, uh, you know, sort of maybe for an hour at 10pm or something like that. And we Saturday were just, night, Saturday yeah. night, and we were just probably flicking through the dog. We were like, this what, this is pretty, yeah. what's this? this guy? He sounds funky. He sounds kind of funky, and this is pretty cool. <laughs> and was that like the Radio 1 Soul Show or something? Yeah, it, it was, was discovating. Discovating, it was called. Right. Saturday night, it was on yeah. for very long. Yeah, yeah. So we both... You know, and that was, we heard a couple of records on his show. He's an American, you know, uh, kind of funky DJ, whatever. And we heard a couple of records on his show that that we hadn't really heard records like that before. Above and Beyond by Edgar Winter was one yeah, of them. Yeah. True Cell by Love Injection was another, I remember, yeah. him playing. And we, and it's interesting because we both, it, like Andy and I, maybe like one of us could have heard it and gone, Oh, this is good, and the other one could have gone. Oh, I think it's a bit crap, and maybe nothing. But yeah. we both heard it, and I think we both sort of went. But the trouble is, is, it was always on the cool. same time as Match of the Day. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, do we watch Match of the Day or do we listen to Al Matthews? And it was a real tussle. Yeah, between as to the, what we would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was another. There was another point, funnily enough, that I remember that also was a sort of football meets music crossover thing. And we used to just, I used to just go to Andy's house and we'd meet up. Should we go out and put, kick around a football around yeah. the garages? But then we. It was just around the time we were starting to buy 
records. Well, I sold the train set and bought a, bought a hi-fi. Uh, great. So, yeah. yeah. So it's a, key a, a, moments. Key, key moments. moments. <laughs> and, and then I think you'd also, you'd bought the Rapper's Delight 12-inch. 12 so, yeah. so that, that you know, day or whatever. So, and like normally we just go out and kick around and play football but it was like ah we've got this new Rapper's Delight 12 inch I needed to get that recorded onto a cassette so Andy was like I know what we'll do let's combine it up we'll press pray and record on the 12 inch and then we'll go out and have a kick around and because how long is the Rapper's Delight 15 Del- minutes yeah the Rapper's Delight it's like 15 minutes long record so then kicking around penalties <laughs> you know whatever vol- headers and volleys and then back in after you know 14 minutes and 30 seconds to, to and that was the end of the recording of, uh, of the Rapper's Delight 12 and that was a bit of a sort of switch there where we kind of switch it up, as Rodigan said the other day. <laughs> um, you know, where we where we sort of started to move then more into 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 music and, and instead of the big thing being like, can we go to a Bristol City match on a Saturday, it started to become like, is there is there sort of some kind of event, music-y thing that we can do? And of course, this is where the school disco type stuff came in and very, yes. very pivotal, leading me up to my up to, to to the next record I want to play really and so there's these guys called Crazy Psychedelic Shack and they were the guys that got all the bookings to play at the school disco or the local rugby club party or whatever it might be and um, and those were the guys that introduced both of us to the to the concept of DJ culture. So we saw them with their mobile setup, you know, the classic flashing lights, painted, yes. whatever, all that thing. And like the guy who uh, queued up the records had like a trim phone, you know, one of those thin old nineteen seventies kind of. It looked like a handheld, oh, yes, yeah. handheld plastic, tele- plastic yeah. telephone Great. thing. <laughs> and he would use that to sort of queue up the records. So he was monitoring on a phone. On a phone. <laughs> Rather than a pair of headphones, okay, which we and, thought was very odd. We thought that was very odd. So we were like, "What is he doing? He's literally on the phone yeah. whilst he's running this mobile <laughs> can't disco." Be queuing up, what, what, the phone. We were like, "What? What is it?" Well, like, we didn't even know what queuing no, up was. No, maybe we didn't know what queuing we up was. All we knew was that the guy who was running the mobile disco had essentially kept, kept had, had a time. phone in. It. So we're like, "What's going on?" And we came up with this theory: maybe he's telephoning to his mates <laughs> out the back because there was in a the big. In the van, because there was a big white van they used to turn up in. And I, my theory was he might be like, it might be like a short, like, what's it called, a radio short Walkie talkie type. Walkie talkie thing. thing. And maybe he's saying, yeah, there's a lot of heavy metal fans in tonight. <laughs> Bring in some more motorhead from the van or something. You know, as we tried to figure out. But then we stood by the decks and then we. We saw him like winding the records back and like forward a bit and back ah and then, and then put the phone down. Put oh. the phone down. Mm. Then we realised ah he's now he's kind of getting the records ready to play. That's what's going on. And, and you were how old at this at this point? 11? 11, 12. 11, 12. So this is, yeah, this yeah. is really early. Love, beautifully naive um, and, yeah. and, and fantastic they early. They let me queue up my first record. Yes. When we realised what they were doing, I said, could I do that? And he let me queue up Since You Be Gone by Rainbow. And then he checked it, to see if I got it right. Yeah. <laughs> and and, in, and in, in a beautiful moment, somehow, Andy dug out the crazy psychedelic shack, found them, <laughs> located them. And, uh, and there was a rather big birthday party that Andy had, not too uh, long ago and um, 
he hired, they, rehired they, them again. Rehired they, these again. guys. That's hilarious. To, on to, the same set. On the same set. They built in 1974, apparently. They yeah, said. And the party was in the. It was in the one of the common the rooms. The common, common rooms at the school, school that we used to go to. And the moment was recreated. So Andy yep. was there, and with friends, family, all of this. <laughs> I was there, and again he kind of queued up <laughs> Rainbow. Possibly the same copy. Possibly the same. Gone, oh, you know, like God. how many decades, you know, like for whatever, I don't know, multiple decades later, yeah. 30 or with 38 more, years later, or, yeah, or whatever crazy. it was. And there were red, orange, and green lights, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, lights. Absolutely oh my gosh, oh, absolutely amazing. Now, the uh, well, we'll play the tune, but the little nugget that I just want to take away from that is, is that when you press play and record on 15 on that 15 minutes of uh, a grandma, was it a grandmaster? Rapper's Delight, Sugar Hill Gang, and then you went outside you know came back 14 and a half minutes perfect time management like yes. you, even, you in know, the, yeah, even in those days even in those days you see even aged 11 and, and you multitasking were getting, yeah, yeah multitasking, multitasking. How, can we, how can we do how can we yes. tick off two things at the same time here and getting, and getting somebody else getting them in there on time yeah. in order to, <laughs> to do it. absolutely but brilliant you know what though that's not the record I wanted to play I wanted to play a different record can you play yeah. something else yeah of course of yeah course. yeah so, so the, the actual record I wanted to play to sum up the crazy psychedelic shack sort of mobile disco era was Stomp by the Brothers Johnson and the reason why I wanted to play this was hmm. so by the time that we started to hear this record myself and Andy had got to know the guys who ran this mobile disco a bit by then so rather than just being random school kids who stood by the decks or whatever and kind of figured out what was going on they'd got to know us and we'd been to multiple gigs that they'd done they let us uh, queue up rainbow yeah they let they, they <laughs> we'd queued, probably we'd go into the zone where they let us queue up a few things yes, by, the, yes. by the time the folk hall gig and the thing about the folk hall gig was um the normal common room gigs like in school that um that they played everybody was on the same you know level whatever um but this we saw them this one time at the folk hall which had a stage it was portishead folk hall it was like a proper it's like a it's like a village hall, I suppose, with a with a stage, um, and I remember us both standing on the stage, talking and looking, them. talking to them, yeah. looking down, you know, a bit raised up, <laughs> but like in front of us, hundreds of of people, and we're and then we're in a slightly different space. So it's like me, Andy, and the psychedelic chat guys on the stage, and then hundreds of people dancing in front of us, and you know, and just sort of a few feet down. And I do, and they played uh, this Brothers Johnson stomp. And I think at that point, I, I looked out and kind of went, "This, I feel very comfortable here. This is something that I, I like this feeling of kind of of what's going on. Sort of, they're making, they're bringing the the, the music and the excitement, and and there's the crowd, and I'm kind of here, not. DJing actually myself, but just kind of in between the two. In between the two, yeah. Getting the vibe. Getting the vibe, but you know. Again, you were between the artist and the people. Yeah. Which is where you ended up becoming your career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, for the the most part. Yeah. Let's let's listen to that, and then and let's continue down this lovely bit of memory lane from Portishead. Trailblazers.
Brothers Johnson Stomp, a pivotal moment for Nick Hawks, and I'm with Nick and with DJ Andy Smith. So uh, we are in Portishead, I guess late 70s now, and uh, yeah, and or 80s, just touching the 80s, touching, touching, touching 1980. Yep. And so you've had your first taste. Oh, you've queued up your first record. Well, he you, has. You, yeah, you've, so know, Andy's yeah. queued up a record. <laughs> I did. Uh, Nick, you've, you've hung out. You're, you've hung out and been kind of in between the artists and the, you know, and the, the DJ crowd. and the and, and the crowd. So it must must not have been too long because you've both had records. Started yeah. a record collection by now. It must have been, not been too long before you started actually DJing. So you know what what was the, the story well, there? The pivotal time I think there was my sister's birthday. Was it? Uh, yeah. Do you remember? We. It was my sister's sixteenth birthday. Birthday. Right. It was the first time that she was allowed to have people in our house. Okay. My mum and stepdad went out for the day. Yeah. Uh, evening, mm. afternoon probably. Yeah. And, and and we set up, if you remember, my hi-fi next to my mum's hi-fi. Okay. With the speakers next to each other. Yeah. And we DJed together with no mixer. Yes. So, so we were just was, on volume controls. Right. Wow. So that was the first time that we did the two hi-fi things. Uh, I think it was the first time we technically DJed together, but without a mixer. Okay. So we had to kind of tell each other when when to kind of adjust the volumes, you know. I mean, I don't think we mixed this. We did some chop mixes, and there's yeah. one <laughs> particular chop mix that we still remember to this day. Maybe yeah. you want to talk about that. Yeah, that was... Is it... Uh, Do you remember? Is it Blondie into Patrick and Andy's? No, it was Patrick and Andy's into Blondie. Patrick and Andy's into Blondie. <laughs> it's, it's forgotten. There's been a lot... There's been a lot... A lot's gone. On in the time close. Come on, um, <laughs> pretty close. So yeah, no, that's right. So that was the first time then that we DJed on two home hi-fi's. I yeah. didn't know that that was the the very first time, but I do I remember. So. I do remember us taking around two home hi-fi's, one a stack, you know, kind of vertically yeah. arranged, and one a horizontally one. arranged one. Oh, yes, right. <laughs> you know, oh, God. Both with, you know, they both had, like, turntables and, and a cassette deck. One and, had an 8-track in it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> one had it in the radio with a tuner, you know, to record it, whatever. Home hi-fi's. And then I remember us taking, getting maybe my dad or your mum to, to take us to other people's houses where they were having birthday parties for somebody who was becoming nine or whatever, <laughs> and we'd have been 13 or 12, yeah. and we would do the party with the two hi-fis. But no, we would always do it together, next no to each mixer. other. Yeah, no and mixer. Say, um, it's okay, going to fade out. You know that bit where it goes, because in Patrick Canandes, where it goes, wow. Yeah. When it goes, wow, I'm going to take the volume out. So if you just bring Blondie in at that point. And so we just kind of coordinated before it happened. You were communicating and playing and mixing records without a mix. Just one, two separate hi-fi units. Yeah, yeah, so a, lot chop, a lot of chop mixes. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Wow. And <laughs> and, and and so I, I, and I guess so. When did it start getting? You must have realised pretty soon, soon that your this was non-sustainable yeah. in terms of your your equipment. Yeah. When did, were, were you it was at, the worst rider we've ever worked with. Wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? <that's> shocking. <laughs> at, at what stage? You know, who? I'm guessing Andy. You probably you probably bought the first. I did. I, 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 I bought good, a set of. Good. Well done, Eddie. It's the right guess. Andy led <laughs> yeah, the. I bought a set of Citronic, Citronic Seven. Yeah. Couldn't afford the stereo one, so I had to buy the mono one. Yeah. So we had yeah one of those setups with the two decks and the remote deck starts and and we yeah but then we take that around and plug that into an amp and everything. So, and this yeah. is and this is pre Technics any kind of Technics oh, twelve ten. Never right? seen a Technics twelve hundred yeah. in that in, at that time. Yeah, yeah, they existed. This was just they would have existed, but we you know. never saw them. Yeah, on Port Z, didn't no. get to Port Z. No, no. <laughs> but the other thing I was going to say is, uh, yeah. you know, is that so we we were we were doing these parties. Obviously, we were playing 
fairly well-known pop records, yes, essentially, and it had to, yes, and the Crazy Psychedelic Shack were playing pretty much pop records, yeah. Uh, although they did play some before the, the the night started, they sometimes played some deeper stuff. But I, I was going to say, you know, how 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 did well I know, but you know, how how did we get into you know uh, Sharon Red and you know Prelude records and Sal Sol records and yes. you know and mixing, is another yeah, thing. yeah. Well, I mean, obviously Al Matthews on the radio yeah. that we've talked about was was the first start point, but then because we were too young to go to clubs because we were 12 13 14 whatever it was it was local radio um and radio in the broader sense that that gave us the the almost the lifeline into this other world of music that existed out there mm. we touched on it with one of our former guests on trailblazers tony prince um and we used to listen to his show fading in and fading out on radio luxembourg and then there were local radio djs ray edwards on radio west um there was a, a reggae dj on seven sound called ivan o'campbell and that was our first entry point into reggae um and yeah it was it was it was just yeah. seeking it out Seeking out the music through through radio primarily, I think, was the way that we then started to embrace this. And then, and then it was here, and I think you know Tony Prince used to have Alan Coulthard doing the guest mix. Yeah, that's true. That was a big thing for us. We we yeah. walking around with your uh, ghetto blaster recording. Yeah, you know uh, Alan Coulthard's Solar mix, walking around with the signal going in and out. Yeah, well, I've still got the tapes. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> and and we got into the whole idea of, of mixing. You know, through yeah, that's through true. that, and then Froggy, we read, read yeah. about Froggy. Yeah, I mean, we we did see Froggy. Once briefly, uh, Radio One a, disco warming up at a Radio One roadshow event, DLT or yep. something, whoever it That's was. Right. But we never saw him doing the no. soul events. No, but um, mm. and and also I think I mentioned should go to James Hamilton. Yes, because that because pre- so James mm. Hamilton had this uh, um, sort of uh, page in Record Mirror, and it, and he talked about all the new records, and they were all BPM'd, you know, and I mean BPM within, within an inch of their life. Yeah, they? they were all, all <laughs> described very intricately in detail fashion and all of these were all of this stuff felt felt really sizzly and exciting to me and I mean it kind of it shaped where I chose to study after sixth form because I just decided I want to be in London because I was because re- I knew that there were pirate radio stations in London and and James Hamilton in his in his uh, column would talk about you know cool clubs happening and and all of this and yeah it was at, in in that era we were in Portishead obviously we we could dip in a bit a bit to Bristol and as we got older we were able to to kind of slide into some clubs and we should tell them about the first club we ever went to yeah, on a course, Tuesday night yeah with you, your you, dad. Can, you can tell that one you can you can tell Eddie <laughs> oh, that one okay yeah. yeah so so we wanted to go to a club in Bristol which is like 12 13 miles away so it wasn't easy to get in and out from Portishead but Nick's dad um, said to, to us that he would take us into a club one night and, and pick us up. I don't think we stayed uh, to the hold, end of the hold night. Hold on, take us into a club? No, he would drive no, he us was, sorry, there. He wouldn't come in with us. He'd, he'd <laughs> drop us off there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listen to Ad, yeah. So so we thought, well, let's go to a club. And then I think we, we found out that Cinderella's on Park Street yeah. uh, had 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 a, a pretty good night going on. And I think maybe Martin Starr was DJ and Doodlebug, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were like, well, which night should we go? Well, Let's, it, there's a night on a Tuesday. It's going to Tuesday. We were completely unaware that clubs weren't busy every night of the week. We thought Tuesday would be just as busy as a Friday or Saturday. <laughs> so we end, we go in there and there's about six people in there. There was, yeah. And we, we stayed there. We were great. They were playing Earth, Wind and & Fire and, you know, I don't know, some great tunes. 
But we were like, well, well, where is everybody? Yeah. We didn't so realise. Well, that was all right. So we must have been about 15 then, uh, maybe 14 yeah. 15 Ian. And you could sort of slide your way into adult clubs. Yeah, about, those days. About easy, yeah. sort of 15, 14 to 15, you know, with a bit of luck. So, yeah, that was that. Was that. And um, so, yeah, we just started to dip in and out and try where we could to to um, to access sort of club culture but it was difficult because we, we couldn't you know we couldn't you know yeah our parents wouldn't let us stay out till 2am and mm-hmm. you couldn't easily get in and out of town and all of that so so it was it was difficult which which and, and that was the, the era that I, this sort of yearning built up a lot I've got to be in the heart of the action I need to kind of get get to to, to London really you know yeah. And then we did progress from there to slightly uh, deeper clubs, shall I say, like the Tropic. Yeah. And we even went to the dugout, the legendary dugout club, yes. a couple of times before it shut down. Correct. That, which th- was this, a big thing. This was probably then we're in the sixth form. So now yeah. we're we're sort of, you know, 16, 17, 18. And then we are able to sort of, uh, you know, oh, I'm, I'm sleeping over at my friend Paul, you know, Paul's house <laughs> this evening. Oh, OK, fine. But Paul's parents didn't mind what time you got back in, so go out to the dugout, you know, whatever, come yeah. home at 5.30 in the morning, and <laughs> it was all fine. But my parents would have had a heart attack if they knew that I was out <laughs> clubbing until 5 in the morning. <laughs> well, they, you know, <laughs> my mum still does find it odd to this, to this day. <laughs> and and is, there a, is there a record that kind of sums up that time, or is there, was there a particularly inspirational tune around that time that made you think, you know... I I really want to be more involved in this. Wow, I think gosh, I don't know. I'm not sure that I uh have a so I mean I I suppose from that Brothers Johnson moment I was already kind of hooked into it. Hooked it, into yeah. it and I think everything else just sort of added to it in mm. a way. So you knew that you were going to be involved in music by the time you were 16, 17. Yes. I'm going to say yes to that, I think. I think I knew I'd have an involvement. I don't know that... I'm not sure that I knew it would be my career because it was possible when I was 16 that maybe I'd have done something that wasn't, you know, exactly my career. But I knew it would have a big involvement. I I didn't know it would be my career. Right. At all. I, I thought it would be a hobby. Right. And if I, you know, made anything out of it, it would have been a bonus. You know, it was only because I met up with Jeff Barrow and Port said a little bit later when Nick had left and gone to London that that things worked out for me really, and, and it became a career for me. Mm. Right. Well, so well, so that's a pivotal fork in the road. Yeah. Um, Nick, you you left Portishead. Yes. To yes. pursue your music career in uh, London. Yeah, via, yeah, I mean, literally, I only applied to unis in London. Right, right, be- right. Because, because that's where I needed to be, to be close to the, to the heart of, of music culture. Yeah, um, and, and, and Andy, you stayed in, uh, you stayed in Porter's Head. Um, you weren't tempted to, to, to go to the bright lights in the big city? Not, not London, no. I mean, I, I eventually met a girl and moved to Bristol, but yeah, I was in Portsmouth for, for quite a while and I was DJing in Bristol, you know, just with friends. Uh, a friend of mine, Paul, used to give me a lot of work and maybe once or twice a month and really loving it, enjoying it. And uh, yeah, that, that was, and then got a job in Bristol. That was, that was just what I thought I would do, just work in Bristol in an office I worked at for quite a while and I thought I'd just DJ as a hobby. Yeah, and, and- 
And it was, and in terms of sort of the way that friendships morph through the years, me moving away to uni was just that that beginning of our of us sort of talking less, seeing less of each other, and a bit of a, a drift into different kind of lifestyles. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, I don't want to. I need to talk about what I did whilst I was at uni, but then, and then when I start, by the point that I'd got my first job in the music industry, or even around the time I was sort of starting up XL, this sort of period of maybe, it's probably a period of about five years here, Andy and I kind of drifted apart, never fell out, but but we just well, drift, drifted away, you do. having yeah, different yeah. lifestyles, we weren't really seeing much of each other, no. you came up to visit a couple of times, did you come up to I, to see me and you went, we went we, to a Jar Shaka gig? We did, we went to Jar Shaka in yeah. London, you Came. Did Jeff was Jeff with us then? Jeff, yeah. I seem to remember Jeff being on your porch and outside your flat. Yeah, yeah I think I think once. Jeff Barrow came up there to went don't to know. go and to that Jar Shaka gig with think, you. I don't think he was at the Jar Shaka gig. Oh, but was maybe it something that was a else? Time. I'm not too sure. So there were you know there were bits of crossover there, but there but was, yeah, yeah, that that period of years is one that where 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 Andy wouldn't be able to comment so much on on kind of what I was doing now because it was a different thing. And then we sort of reconnected later. But okay, but yeah, so, so what I, did you what did you study at university? I did uh, communications and sociology at Goldsmiths. Um, and I remember my first uh, night um, in halls of residence as a fresher arriving. And it wasn't characterised by, you know, particularly the nervousness of, oh, gosh, I've got to meet all of these people. And it wasn't characterised by, you know, sort of umming and ahhing or do I miss being at home? It was characterised by, by turning on the radio at, uh, you know in my hall of residence and flipping between like all of these pirate stations going fuck me this is brilliant <laughs> you know I was so excited that I could hear all of this amazing music you know in real time, not on a cassette that somebody had recorded off mm. a pirate in London and brought it back and yeah, sold yeah, it. Yeah. You know, it was just like yeah. all of this music. It, I mean, we had pirate radio in Bristol, but you couldn't get it in Port Said, it was too far away. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah, all but... of this music was, was at my fingertips yeah. and I couldn't get to sleep because I was so exhilarated and excited to be <laughs> kind of in the heart of where it's going on. That was Yeah, and so for those not in the know, Goldsmith London is uh, South, uh, Goldsmith College is South East London. Uh, in sort of Lewisham, Broccoli, Deptford kind of area, yeah. and it, and it, you know, in the, in those days, for for many people, that was kind of no go zone. It was really rough, especially it Deptford. Was. Yeah, and, yeah. But of course, loads of pirate radio stations. Yes, masses of it was a really musicy part of town. Oh, and, there was there was amazing it, stuff that you would just stumble across. I mean, it's funny you mentioned Jar Shaka because Jar Shaka ran a sort of African literature culture store in Deptford that was between between my goldsmith's uni and the halls of residence. So, you know, when we were uh, kind of listening to Ivan O'Campbell on, on the radio and, and getting into a little bit of reggae when we were younger, we, we were aware of Jar Shaka, you know, that film, Babylon, this mm. legendary guy. And actually, while I was in my first year of uni, I sort of developed a bit of a thing. I'd go in, pop into that shop and have a little chat with Jar Shaka, <laughs> you know, who was there selling his, you know, whatever he sold in that place. Um, and, you know... Yeah, it kind of gave me the opportunity, being in London now, to sort of more directly interface with things that before they were untouchable. But, you know, for example, I I started um, helping out at Radio 1 um, during my uni years, and that happened because I knew that... 
one of the Radio 1 DJs had a TV show um, and I went down to the to the recording of the TV thing and I hung around and afterwards uh, I just said, introduced myself, hi, I don't know whether, I'm ne- just wondering if you ever need anybody to help you at Radio 1, I don't know, it's, maybe it's crazy. And the guy goes, well, here's my phone, the phone number of my producer, give him a call, you know, maybe there's something. So I call up the Radio 1 producer, I go, oh yeah, I was at this recording of the TV show with, with Peter Powell. Peter Powell. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, and um, uh, yeah, he said, "Give you a call." He said, "Okay, we'll come down." And we had a chat. And he said, "Oh, there's a thing on Peter Powell's show called the Pop Panel. Get kids in, in inverted commas, off the street. You know, uh, um, and they review the new records of the day." And he was like, "Okay, well, do you want to, you know, have a go at that?" And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds amazing." So I then became like a roundtable thing with Peter Powell. Where oh, these are the new records? What do you think? Um, and that. Uh, yeah, and I became a member of that pop panel record review thing on Radio 1 while I was at, uh, at uni, which freaked out. I mean, I'd, there'd be people who would be other people in the Hall of Residence go, were you on Radio 1 this morning? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I sort of go like, uh, yeah, yeah, it was actually. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I was like, yeah, I was. And they're like, what? But that's uh, the key to your success, isn't it, I think, Nick, that you always go that extra mile to work out how to get something happening and how you're going to get involved in this, and, you know, where other people wouldn't do what you do. He's a hustler. You're a hustler, are you? Yeah. yeah. I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in the, nice, so. in the nicest well way. well for you. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, you know, so then then that's right. And then and, and a whole bunch, I think a, a bunch of those skills were developed during my, my uni years, really. And, you know, each of the the, the sort of summer breaks, I, I did stuff that was, was, you know, pretty useful to me. Is this the Ibiza trip? And well, the, yeah. I mean, there was the, the in my first summer of uh, break, I DJ'd in Magaluf in Mallorca for the oh, whole yeah. summer. So that helped me to really understand. That was I was DJing every night from like ten at night till six in the morning. Like every night, you know, didn't get a day off. Christ Almighty! Yeah, that's, I, a, that's a lot of vinyl. Yeah, well, yeah, but you'd play the big records three times in the night. Eddie, uh, of course, you know. And but I did like I think I added it. I think it was eighty-seven nights consecutively wow. DJing for six to eight hours that's a insane. night. It's but but it really kind of like you didn't have your own records. They had their own records in the bar. Did well, they they, they the I, I brought a bunch of mine, yeah. uh, mainly using my 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 vinyl. Oh. So that really helped me that summer. And that gave me my first... Uh, I actually went on a holiday to Ibiza after I finished the summer season in Mallorca. So I had a little bit of time, my first egg, my first experience of Ibiza. And then summer of 87, uh, well, a very pivotal experience happened there for me, Eddie. Um, so this was where I applied for a Work America permit. So if you were under 26 or whatever, you could get a, a limited short-term work permit for America. Um, and most people would work at kids' camps, you know, those yeah. things, whatever, teaching kids to play tennis or whatever didn't really think that was my scene so I just got a regular work permit and then I just needed to try and find a job so um, I uh, what did I do I got a job as a cinema usher in New York uh, in the evenings and then kind of like you were saying Andy I was then trying to figure out how can I get a bit more out of this situation Mm. Um, uh, and that and then I landed on the idea well I know what I'm going to do I'm going to 
call up um, WBLS Radio, which is the main black music station in New York at the time, and I'm going to ask if I can interview the boss of the the, the station mm. because maybe there's maybe I don't know. I'll just do it because I'd like to. I'm here in it's New a York. Way, way in. Oh, yes, well, this, I'm here in New York. Maybe something can happen. I didn't particularly expect to get a positive response, but I spoke to his assistant. She said, oh, "Okay, I'll you know, fine. I'll, I'll ask him." Ten minutes later, she calls back. Yep, you know, Mr. Kirkland would be delighted to be interviewed by a journalist from London. So, you know, would you like to come around 10 o'clock tomorrow morning and and do the interview? Yeah, yeah, I would, thank you. Put the phone down. Jesus, I didn't think that was going to work. Scrambling around, (laughs) you know, like listening to every radio set. I've got to come up with some questions now. I've got no idea what I'm going to ask the guy. So I'm like, now I'm like just panicking a bit. But You blagged your way into the the biggest urban station, you know, possibly in the world. well, and, 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 and then you blagged your way into one of the biggest parties on. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it basically, it's just there's layers. So I go in, I do the interview, and then I hang around. Um, and then the lady who ran the record library said, you know, oh, you know, sort of, what, what, what are you doing? Oh, I'm trying to find an. I'd like to have an internship or something whilst I'm working in Cinema Russia in the evenings. You know, she's like, okay, okay. She's like, well, you know, have you got a bit of time now? I, yeah, sure. She's like, well, do you want to file those records there? And you know, and we need to. Call these radio, uh, sorry, these record stores to, to compile a chart of the hottest records in New York. So this is the list. Do you want to call? Yeah, fine. I'm happy to help. Did all that for the day. Got to the end of the day, and um, I said, "Oh, thank you so much for help allowing me to kind of help out here at WBLS. This is fantastic. You know, really appreciate it." And she says, uh, "Yeah, yeah. So uh, same time again tomorrow morning, then." <laughs> and and I say, uh, "What? Uh, like I-, I could help you again tomorrow if you." If you want, I mean, I'm a bit confused. She goes, sure, you're our new intern. I'm, I'm like, wow, am I? Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically then I interned at WBLS that summer and then another pivotal moment comes up where basically I used to, you know, get to meet the, the various radio pluggers, Eddie, that came in with the, the new records and stuff and um, got, to, got to know them. One day the, the guy from Epic comes in, he goes, guys, got a new Michael Jackson album coming up, got the world premiere playback party, uh, who wants to come? And he was in the programming area. It's like me. It was a bad. Me, it? it was, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was bad by Michael Jackson. Me, Francine Cruz, Bobby Condors, there's like about three of us in the office, who wants to come? And I sort of sheepishly <laughs> put my hand up. I was like... Am I allowed to put yeah. my hand up? <laughs> and, and if you'd seen my face, I had a quizzical look on my face, which probably was like, my hand was like slowly going up and on my face was like, should I be doing this? Am I allowed to? And I sort of did it. He's like, yeah, you're a good kid. You can come. Bump, hands me the invite. And then basically, yeah, I find myself at the world premiere playback of Bad by Michael Jackson on this mega yacht, a sort of Roman Abramovich type yacht, yeah. circling around Manhattan, champagne, caviar. I mean, no, I'd never been to any event that where I was given free alcohol before, other than a family wedding or funeral, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. You know? But but now it's like caviar. Like, what's that? Like, I, you know, and champagne and really? And and basically, and I was also to, said to the, the WBLS people, like, who are all these other guys on this this yacht then? And um, they go, yeah, well, that's the editor of Billboard and that guy runs Tower Records <laughs> and that guy's uh, music director, uh, you know, Hot 96. Just... Right. And I'm like... <laughs> And me, you know. <laughs> so you thought, you thought, I like this. Well, well, I'm, I'm between my first and... Am I between my... F- no, I'm between my second and third year of uni. 
but I completely, you know, I, I was stand, standing there on the mega yacht thinking, I shouldn't be here. I'm a uni student from, <laughs> from London. But somehow I, I'm in this unbelievable thing. You're getting a first-class degree at the University of Life, is yeah, what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm at this incredible event, and I shouldn't be here. But in my mind, I was like, but I'm here because I work at BLS. Mm. So, but And then how did I come to work at BLS? Well, because I sort of was right place, right time, and I called up the thing, and I had the initiative to try and do that Which interview thing. That's what I said. You and always it, do you go around and, and make things happen. Yeah, so, yeah. so that, that, that kind of run of things that, that happened to, to get me there, um, uh, I, I did actually reflect on it at the time. I was like, I, I shouldn't be here, but I am. And that at that point, I thought, well, if... If that can happen, then maybe other things that I shouldn't really do in the future, maybe they could actually happen as well. Because if this has happened, it's fucking nuts that I'm here, but it's happened. So maybe some other fucking nuts stuff can happen in the future. Maybe I will sign an artist that will have a hit. Or maybe I will run a record label or something or I don't know manage so, wow in that moment you were going from it's called imposter syndrome isn't it that's when you go I shouldn't be here so uh-huh. it's interesting sort of psychological uh, state yeah imposter syndrome so well, did you, you realise at that point that you wanted to go into music rather than radio uh, no no the, no no the still both were open to yeah. me but I think it was a penny drop where it's like kind of what I think is really unlikely and maybe a bit impossible, it maybe it actually can happen. That was the the change because before that moment, I I'd had no evidence to suggest that really unlikely, amazing things could happen. But then, uh, so it, I assume you you came back then and finished your uni course. How how soon after your uni course did things start happening for um, you? Then? Soon, straight away, but mm. but there was so much more that happened during my uni oh, time. I mean, I, sorry, I don't I'll I'll I, uh, you know. <laughs> hopefully, time isn't you know too much of a, a challenge to us here because we haven't even haven't even signed a record. But <laughs> but yeah, but you know, so my New York I had my New York thing, and there's the BLS thing. I, I've, I've got to say, I I I had some amazing clubbing experiences in that summer in New York. It was I went to Paradise oh, Garage. That was another thing. I, you know, you know the, the little Paradise Garage anecdote. I've heard that before, yeah. So that's all right. I'll just for your benefit, Eddie, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, yeah. So basically, there's a guy, a Scottish guy, I met um, out there, and he was going to go to the Paradise Garage that evening, and and he was like, uh, "Hey, Nick, you can you can come down, but I got there's there's three things about it you need to know about." And I'd heard of the Paradise Garage, but I didn't really know. He said, "Firstly." It's very gay. I was like, right, okay. Uh, secondly, it's very black. Um, it's very gay. It's very black. Yeah, and the third thing, and thirdly, it's very druggy. <laughs> right. And I was like, right, right, that sounds okay. Great. I was like, right, okay. You know, sort of like straight white kid who'd never done any drugs. I'm like, ah. But I, I literally thought, well, I've got the chance to go. What I'll go down with, with this guy. And if I if I spend 10 minutes there and I, I, I'm completely freaked out, at least I've checked out for 10 minutes. And, but I went down and stayed there and, uh, you know, Okay, stop the clock because you just there's something interesting there to me, which is that as a you know as a kid that's into dance music and hip hop and you know disco and whatever, you hadn't you weren't doing any drugs, and Mm. to this day I know you've never done any drugs. Like, what's the story with that? 
Because yeah. you're the only person, you're pretty much the only person in dance music. <laughs> I haven't either. Yeah, and you haven't either. No. My God, well, two, the, 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 the two only drug free people in dance music and, <laughs> they're, and they're best mates. That's just incredible. Like real ale, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I've had the odd little dab. I did half an E once in, in a sort of goer trance type rave in Amsterdam. Um, uh, you know, I've smoked smoked a little bit of spliff here and there, but but uh, but in very very infrequently. I mean, I think for me, one of the things is I, I like I'm maybe a bit of a control freak. I like being in in charge of my and having a good handle on what's going on in my surroundings. So yeah. that's probably part of it. And secondly, I just have always somehow had this incredible high that the that the music and the and the the environment can give me, and I'm just like I'm good. I'm loving it. This is fine. I'm. Don't I'm in, need any more dopamine. No, yeah. I don't. I'm, I've got enough. I'm. 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 I'm buzzing as it is, and I'm good with it. And and yeah, it's not a moral thing. Obviously, I've been at events where I literally am the one person who's who's not off their face, surrounded by thousands and thousands of, <laughs> yeah, of I mean, people. Imagine who, who are absolutely mullered. <laughs> um, you know. So I know. But, but you know. Yeah. It, it, it's just. It's just. You know, it's the way it is, I guess. Well, you know, that's, that's fascinating. So let's let's get on to, um, I guess, to you know your 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 entry point into into, into hit making. You know, right. so so what was the what was the story that led to your first hit? Okay, or to your first signing, even. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I had worked in. Ibiza in the summer of 88 between leaving uni and having my first gig um, which was a part-time job at Secret Promotions we touched on briefly so um, so I'd kind of learned and I'd learned some entrepreneurial skills in in Ibiza because um, what I did there was uh, DJed in a beach bar and also uh, sold uh, manufactured and sold smiley t-shirts in Ibiza in the summer of 88 so I'd gone to Ulysses who ran the sort of um, what's it called like the concession the boutique concession thing in amnesia and gone you know hey i've kind of got an idea smiley t-shirts it's kind of the smiley thing is growing in i be sorry in london and there was a girl at amnesia actually who i sat by once and she had a homemade smiley t-shirt and and people kept coming up to her going hey where did you get a t-shirt and she was like oh i made it myself and i explained this to ulysses and he was like, oh great you know so cool well you go and get some T-shirts manufactured, and I'll stock them in the store, and uh, we'll see how it goes. So we did that, and they sold really well. And so basically, that summer of, and there is a link to the first hit here because summer of '88, I'm in, I'm in, I'm amnesia. You know, most nights of the week, I had a little moped. I used to ride it around with, with the T-shirts in a rucksack and and top up amnesia or coup or whatever. They'd sold twenty, have another. 15 summer of 88 and i'm i'm, I'm ibiza based and ex and, and you know dancing in the open air to you know turntable orchestra you're gonna miss me and the night writers and stuff like that amazing um and so i'm doing all of that and then uh so i kind of was was really tuned into to that that explosion of music. Um, what led directly to the first hit was I'd split, I'd, I'd left Secret Promotions and I'd gone to, I'd approached Tim Palmer who ran Groove Records and I knew that he needed a club promo guy. And um, I'd said, hey, you know, I, I, can I, I'm interested in maybe being, you know, having the club promo job. 
Tim, but it, it might there be an opportunity to sign records as well? He said, sure, you be the club promo guy, but if you find a good record out there that you like, um, absolutely bring it in, and if it's good, we'll sign it. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I hadn't been there at City Beat that long, um, and I go to... Um, a, so you started at City Beat. You yeah, said it was Groove, but Groove, well, Groove changed into City Beat. No, no. So Groove Groove Records was the store that Tim yeah, uh, and ran. And the label. Well, Groove Productions, something different. Uh, yeah. And then City Beat was the label that mm. Tim Palmer ran. Um, and so basically I go out to this club in Maidstone with a former Trailblazer, who, for, former Trailblazer's guest Danny Rampling was playing at, and, uh, and then he plays this record and I sprint over from the back of the club club erupt sprint over and we touched on it in his show didn't we yes um, and, um, and and I get to the uh, to, to the DJ and he's playing the, the record I'm like wow what is this and I lean over and it says it's a white label with fuck off nosy written on it <laughs> and I thought I'm not going to get very far here but but basically then I called up tracks records I um, uh, sung the record to them down the phone they're like yeah that's Starlight numero uno um, and uh, and then we we knew that they were like oh there's only Four copies of this in the UK. Rampling's got one. Blah blah. Trevor Fung's got one. We knew Trevor Fung. Trevor Fung. We kindly got him to come to the office with his one of the four copies in the UK. Played the record in our office with Tim. Tim Palmer's like, yeah, that does sound like a, a potential big record. Nick, great. Let's sign it. And then and then basically we faxed the uh, the offer. Fax. It's like a, if, you, if you don't if you don't know what a fax is if you don't know what a fax is, kids, it's like a paper email. Um, uh, so fax and, and signed the numero uno by Starlight. Was so that, that was, before or after you tried to get Black Box Ride on Time? I didn't try it. Black oh. Box Ride on Time passed me by. Oh, Andy. I thought you same, were trying to get it. Nah, it same, same, mirror, same, same producer, same production mm. team. But no, we got... Um, we got Numero Uno and Deconstruction, and Deconstruction mm. got got the one that yeah, stayed it fell in. into uh, Mike Pickering, our yeah. former oh, yes, guest. Yeah. Yeah. Another former guest. <laughs> so yeah, so so that was the route, and um, yeah, I mean. And, and like I, I touched on earlier, that validation, this record, one that gave me one of the highest points of my life ever. This because the record had gone into the charts at number thirty-nine, and then I was just like a punter, I was listening on the radio Sunday evening to see where the, the record goes next. We knew we had a hot record; the orders had been good during the week, and they're kind of listening to the show, kind of like and up to number twenty-three, it's and I kept thinking, is this our record? No, it's something else, right? And up to number twenty-one, it's surely now it's got to be Star like numero uno no something else then panic descends <laughs> fuck it's not, it's not. it happen. must it must have dropped out of the chart what yeah. on earth has gone wrong i mean we've, you know this is a disaster we're supposed to be a hot record fortunately they get to number 17 and the highest climber of the week from number 39 up to 17 it's starlight numero uno <laughs> and i was just going absolutely <laughs> Ballistic, Bonk. yeah. I was, I was, I was can't wait. I lived in a shared kind of student house, and yeah. I was just screaming, running up and down the stairs, sort of like doing roly polies through. So the- you were, you had your first hit at how old? Ah, uh, so that's uh, twenty. I mean, 
one, two, or wow. something like that. I guess. Wow, still at university? Oh no, no, no. I left. Like, oh, I'm yeah, still le- in the shared house. Yeah, but but I now I now was a club promo slash A and R guy at City Beat. Right. But you know yeah, how yeah, you saw you stay yeah. living with other yes, semi students. Of course. Yeah, so, so you just just, just I mean, getting you could in. have been. You could yeah. have been a, a, a student. Sorry, I was yeah. going to say it was all pretty cutthroat, wasn't it? Those days to try and get things licensed. That a lot of people were after the same track. And I've got another City Beat question, which I've always been meaning to ask you over the years, and I never have, so I'm going to ask now. How did you get It Takes Two by Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock? How come that didn't go through... Uh, FFRR yeah. or even Paul Oakenford through Champion and 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 I can't answer that one because that was before my time at oh it wasn't you oh okay yeah, sorry, I didn't, that's, that's, I, didn't that's I wasn't involved in, in It Takes Two okay. and getting on to the cutthroat thing I mean it was actually fairly straightforward signing Numero Uno that wasn't a problem but there, there were other examples but but you know should we should we take a little break sip some water listen to I don't know. yeah absolutely let's let, let's listen to your first hit and uh, uh yeah and you can you can relive that we'll see what you me and andy <laughs> watch you can't wheeling yes. around the studio <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trailblazers So, Numero Uno, um, was that Numero, the highest climber at Numero 17 or whatever it was? Yeah, got to Numero uh, 7 or something right. in so, the chart. Incredible. So, your, your first signing mm. was a top 10. Um, so it, wasn't, obviously, it wasn't my first signing, but it was it was my first. Right. Pro, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. First. So, you, you you know at this point you're good at this. So, what I'm dying to know, yeah. and what everybody is dying to know, yeah. is how we got from there to you setting up XL yeah. and then getting that prodigy demo and sure. how the story of you signing the greatest band in the greatest electronic maestro in in, in English is British history yeah so uh Having the hit with Numero Uno gave me the sort of credibility with Tim Palmer my boss at the time that you know he I'd then proven that you know he could Nick you know, can identify something that can do well. So then, um, I mean, one of the things about City Beat that was um, not great in a way was that there was a lot of records came out on the label sort of trying to be hits, some solely stuff, some kind of housey stuff, some rap stuff, and then some rap stuff that wasn't trying to be a hit. It was a bit all over the place. So I, but of course, at this time, culturally, we've got this, you know, burgeoning underground. Um, uh, and I said to Tim, why don't we do something that, why don't we set up a new label that um, is, that taps into this underground culture and let's not try and sign things that, that we think are hits necessarily. Let's just sign great underground music and, and sort of see what happens and not be worried about, oh, let's not sign it because it won't go on the radio or whatever. So I kind of said, I think there's a really an opportunity here. And, That's and a bold move. Yeah, well, he said, he you know, but Tim was like, yeah, I mean, let's do it then, you know, essentially. Um, because, yeah, I guess because I, I probably... 
you know, came across as somebody who seems to know what they were doing and I was tapped mm. into it. So Tim said, yeah, sure, let's do it. And in those days, there was the money in the record industry to to, to go out on a limb yeah. and, and do stuff like that. I mean, we didn't need to go out on too much of a limb because a lot of the records that we were signing to XL were, were, you know, low advances and, you know, we weren't competing with the, the big guys. And on the occasions where we did try and compete with the big boys, we got kicked to the curb anyway and I think maybe this is when you you touched on like the cutthroat thing so for example I mean as an example I remember hearing Justin Berkman play French Kiss by Little Louie at Heaven um, and of course it slowed down and it speeded up and again I'm at, on, I'm at the far end of the dance floor wondering what the hell's going on I don't didn't know whether he just pitched <laughs> down the record and then pitched it back up or what but anyway a bit like Numero Uno sprinted across Justin, what, what what the fuck was that all about? What happened there? <laughs> and he was like, oh, it's this new record, French Kiss, Little Louie. Wow. And I wrote down the phone number on, on the record and then called it the next day. And I'm like, uh, hello. And he's like, hi, it's Louie. Oh, I'm like, is that Little Louie? Yeah. <laughs> ah, right, I'm calling from a record label. I want a, a French Kiss. I would like to sign your record. He's like, yeah, cool. Okay. Um, <laughs> like, could we, you know, like, would $1,500 you know, be good for the UK. Yeah, sounds cool to me, man. You know, just speak to my lawyer and, you know, let's get it wrapped up. Okay, put the phone down. And I'm like, Jesus, have I just signed French Kiss? But, of course, the, the, the issue was then speak to the lawyer and the lawyer blanked us, blanked us, and yeah. three weeks later, he was like, we've got offers in excess, in excess of $25,000, and so unless you want to step up, you're not going to get it. So that's a good example of how, you, you know, we couldn't compete and we didn't. Yeah. But, but, you know, we could sign good underground records. And, and then I proceeded to, yeah, sign, you know, a bunch of the Frankie Bones stuff, you know, just as long as I got you, Looney Tunes whatever, all that kind of thing. And then it was it was records like T99, Anastasia, Cubic 22, Night in Motion, where the same kind of philosophy was applying to signing these records as had, had been the case when, when I was signing a Frankie Bones record. But now the market was growing and we got better at it and then we just started having hits. So T99, Anastasia you know, flies into the chart and then Cubic 22 does. So it was accidental that you had the hits, essentially? I don't know that it was accidental. I think but you didn't go out there to have hits, as uh, you said. Didn't, didn't go out there to have hits at the start, no. But then I think that what, what started to become the case was just we were l learning on the job mm. that if you sign great, connective, exciting, dynamic music that I'm passionate about... Hopefully other people mm. might mm. share my passion and also go, mm. it is fucking great. And then people will be like, I want to buy it. Mm. So, you know, the, 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 you know, having the hits was kind of like other people getting excited mm. in the same way as I was getting excited about those records. But the Liam thing, well, that came about um, because we'd put out, you know, yeah, sort of a bunch of Frankie Bones stuff. And Liam was a DJ with a rap act called Cut to Kill at that point. And he just cold called me on, on the phone in the office and go, said, hey, I'm a DJ with this act and I've made some tunes and it's not right for them and I just wondered if I could, you know, come and play you the, the you know, what I've done. So fortunately, very fortunately, rather than saying, ah, put it in the post, man, you know, I'll, I'll check it out. For some reason I said, yeah, sure, you know, come down two days' time at three in the afternoon or whatever. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. great. And I just agreed to sort of have that meeting just... And see wow. what would happen. It was a bloody good 
thing I did <laughs> because Liam only played his music to two labels, Tam Tam, who mm. had, um, you know, Cut to Kill and had some kind of ravey records and XL. And he liked, the, he loved, you know, the, 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 uh, some of the other records, all the Frankie Bone stuff. He liked the, the sort of records we'd been putting out. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, so he came, comes in with his demo cassette and uh, plays me a handful of bits. And, and I ask him the question, oh, it sounds like good underground quality stuff have you got a, a bit of a vision here for how you want to grow this or whatever he goes yeah I'd like to have a, a, a live band actually I'd like to have a band you know and at that at that point it, that demo yeah. were there any songs that we know that went on to the first Prodigy album at that point uh, yeah so the, it was it was basically it had everybody in the, in the place on it and it had had, a, had kind of what became that first uh, EP What Evil Lurks and, and it had the 128 BPM version of yeah. Of, of um, everybody in the place, like before it went up, it, to... it, it had a rough demo with that, yeah. and it had uh, from memory. I do have the cassette at home sometimes. I sh- could, should have brought it in ah. in similar style <laughs> to when Renat uh, was on, but, yeah. but that's just playing the same trick twice. Um, uh, you know, but it, but essentially, I was you know from memory. I think it had everybody in the place on it, but mainly, mainly what we were signing was yeah, was that that first EP, what evil lurks and stuff like that, and um, and yeah, and so asked, that's right, asked. L- Liam, what's the plan? He goes, yeah, I want to have a, a band. I want this to be a live thing. I go, oh, that sounds, sounds did cool. You, did you sounds, see where that, that was sound, going? That, that sounds cool. Um, uh, and I go, have you got the personnel, though? Like, have you got the, guy, the guys or whatever? He's like, well, I've, I've got some mates and I've asked them if they fancy being in a band and stuff, but we haven't had any rehearsals or anything, but I'm hoping that that'll kind of work out. I was like, oh, okay, um, and amazingly, you know, that was the prodigy. His mates were, were you know, Max and, yeah, and, and Leroy just, and, 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 the, yeah, and the, you know, and everything sort of came together. Did I think that well, it from w- hearing that first demo? No, did you, you didn't, I didn't. No. I, I didn't think it was going to be anything like as as big as it's turned mm. out to be. No, what I thought was well, like, there's good stuff here. It's exciting. It's dynamic. And it's the right thing to come out on XL, time, and yeah. let's and let's see where it goes. So, which track are you going to choose? You know what i I was gonna I was gonna save prod a prod moment until <laughs> until later. Okay, all right. All so, right. well, so where are we going to go? Well, well, where well, are we going to go? So, so we're in the thick of the XL era. We've got Liquid, SL two, all of that sort of stuff. And oh, the, I know, the, I know where we got to go. You tell is, me. Is well, so at what point then did Richard Russell? come into the picture and at what point did you decide I'm going to be an artist and then we get the beautiful kicks like a mule <laughs> bouncer tune yeah, that let's, you did let's do that next yeah so um, Rich came on board uh, post the signing of the Prodigy uh, there'd been a bunch of uh, of XL re- releases up and and, and, and running uh, before Rich uh, got on the scene um, but then Rich was uh, in in the mix then as we uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, as records like Liquid, Sweet Harmony, and certainly House of Pain, you know, came around. Uh, and then we were, you know, yeah, I was sort of label manager, head of A&R, whatever you want, you know, kind of r- running sort of a lot, you know, the the, the general vision of, of what, what was happening on the label. And Rich was, you know, started off, yeah, kind of doing some sort of more club promo-y stuff and, and all the rest of it. Then the kicks like a meal, the bouncer thing, yeah. I think Rich and I both... Um, were, were so deeply involved in in all of these big rave records that were happening. We just had a curiosity, like I wonder what what would happen if if we made a record. Um, His idea or yours? 
what to make a record yeah both of us mutual yeah both of us were like yeah maybe we should have a bash yeah maybe we should um and uh so we called up uh, a guy called paul Connolly, who we knew was a publisher and we said we we fancy sort of having a go at making a record and do you reckon you could sort us out with some studio time um and then if the if it works you can publish it he's like yeah sure so blagged a bit of studio time um kind of came up with the the concept um your name's not down you're not coming yeah, in yeah kind of kind of you know knew that we wanted to do something around that area yeah um and yeah just just yeah just made a made a record really um and then it didn't come out on xl um we we thought it was a bit we were like is it a bit weird to start signing signing our own records and putting them out on on XL at the same time as we're signing other artists and having success. Is that good? Is it bad? Are there strengths, weaknesses? Mm. I think we thought that maybe there was a danger if we sign ourselves and other records don't perform as well that the artists signed to us might go, yeah, well, maybe maybe the reason that my record didn't do so well is because you guys put all your effort into Mm. the record that you've made. So we actually signed it to Rebel MC's label, Tribal Bass, um... And uh, they uh, tried to base started to promo the record, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just turned into a really big club record, a really in demand record. It was the era where if you were in a record store, and and many people came in to to. Um, uh, you know, kind of ask for the record. They put a little notice up outside saying, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> please don't ask us anymore. We don't have this record. And that, well. and the signs started to go up. It's like, no, we don't fucking have the bouncer. Please don't ask. So we knew that we had a big record, and and yeah, it went, it went in, it chart, it ended up at like number seven in the in the pop chart, and and. Uh, and gave me an amazing day, actually, because I had another act that I'd signed, Dream Frequency, um, and we also had the, put out their record on, on City Beat, actually, on the, on the same week. Um, and then, fortunately, both of us managed to get on top of the pops uh, on the same episode. So I was there as an artist, but I also had another act that I'd signed <laughs> that were on the same show. So I sort of flitted between the dressing rooms, between their 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 room where they were performing, and and then and there's like, and now you're on, Nick. Oh, right, okay. Can't be many people that have done that. That was, that was kind of kind of crazy. The bouncer is just one of my favourite tunes. Let's uh, let's play it now. I'm dying to hear it. Trailblazers. Your name's not down, you're not coming in. Not, not tonight. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. So that's Bouncer, Kicks Like a Mule, and, you know, that got... Didn't that got, get covered by the Klaxons? It and, did, it did. And then, you know, mashed up by South Central, and, uh, you know, yeah. lots of... It's, it's, of a, it's a beloved record. But uh, before we move on, let me just ask you... Let me just ask you a little... Probe you a little further about your involvement <laughs> with the prodigy. Um, you know, give, <laughs> Go on then, Dr. Temple give, Morris. <laughs> give, give, the people, give the people what they want, is, is, you know, I always say. So 
How did you feel when you first heard that Prodigy demo?、Mm. I mean, did you think, oh my God, I'm onto something massive here? Or, you know, what was going through、mm. your mind when you first heard that? Yeah,、uh, no, I didn't think I'm, I'm onto something massive.、Um, and it's often the way, I think, that you don't, you don't necessarily really know what you've got until a bit of time goes by. And that can work both in the positive and the negative. So, on the upside, sometimes artists develop to be. Um, you know, much more impressive and have much more of a vision than you, than you actually thought at the point of signing. So, as an example of that,、um, I guess、um, when I was at、uh, Positiva, I passed on Basement Jacks. Also, they came into the office, heard the music, they were looking for, a, for an album firm commitment. And I said, Yeah, so, okay, your music's great. What, you know, any sort of vision, you know, for how you want to represent this? You know, any. Thoughts live or anything like that, and they looked at each other and sort of went, No, not really talked about it, not really. Kind of looked at that stuff, and I'm like, Right, so is there a you know, is there a way that you want to convey you know, the music? And no, I mean, maybe DJing and. Because they just had their club night yeah, in South London. Yeah, they had their club night. Exactly. Yeah. So there was, no, there was no live vision. Yeah. There was no, you know, so, I and, I, and I ended up ironic, of course. So I, they they went、know. to Excel. They went to Excel. <laughs> and, and I mean, and I, I passed because, you know, the album firm, videos, remixes, you're probably talking a couple of hundred grand a commitment, but there wasn't the vision. And ironically, so they signed and then they became one of the, the best, most interesting live acts. That all fell into place and that vision kind of was developed post signing. So there's an example of an act that where it's Sort of comes sort of later, and sometimes, and sometimes, of course, you, you, can, you can sign an act, and it seems to be a tremendous vision at the start, but then the reality is that they're, they're flawed and it's all talk, and really they can't finish a record or, or, or get a live show together.、Um, but with The Prodigy, it just sort of grew beautifully. There was the vision for the live thing, as we touched on. Um, and, but I thought, no, I thought this is good, solid, innovative, exciting music. It's the right thing for me to be signing to XL. And then, but then let's see where we go from here. Yeah. And then, of course, as their AR guy,、yeah. how, how involved were you in the music in those early days? Yeah. So, I mean, the. You know, I suppose I would,、um, you know, I'd make suggestions. I mean, one suggestion, for example,、uh, you know, on Charlie that I remember is that the, there was the original version that was quite a kind of just like a dark, a darker sort of. Um, version of the track. And I remember saying to Liam, I think there's maybe room for another riff in this record, you know, and it could be better if there was like maybe a bit more of a, yeah, a bit of a bigger, better, more memorable riff. And then Liam was like, okay. And he took and the suggestions on, did he? he well, on, on that one, he, he, he came back and, how about this? And then it had the,、uh, had that in it. I'm like, that's、oh, yes. really good, man. That's really good. So it was just a suggestion. And then there'll be other suggestions that, I'll have made that, you know, that, that Liam won't have, have picked up on, or, or will go, no, no, it's cool. And that's kind of how it works, really, with artists. You, you provide suggestions, guidance, input, and some of it will get taken on board, and some of it won't. And, and that's the way it should be, because it's at the end of the day, it's up to the artist, you know? But you, you, you can provide encouragement, support, ideas, all of that sort of stuff. But really, the artist at the end of the day, 
will will decide what what's going to happen. Just uh, quickly going back to the basement jacks thing. Do you, yeah. Did you have any regrets about not signing them? I mean, the, you didn't. There was a, a similar thing with Afix doing as well, wasn't there? Well, yeah. Famously, I mean, yes. <laughs> famously, it's getting more famous by the episode. I think Eddie, Eddie chooses to remind everybody about it every every time we just meet that time. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Look, I actually think that um, the the that there should be there should be successful stuff that you've passed but passed on if you have had a successful career in in music in being an artist manager or running a record label because it shows that you're in the mix of good interesting exciting stuff that was happening and you were there and you were looking at it and you're aware of it and you can't do them all you know so <clears throat> so i think that just goes with the territory either passing on stuff that goes on to be successful um, or maybe underestimating some stuff, you know, or, or, or whatever. Yeah. I, I, In the early days, you were um, uh, wishing on a star, Fresh Four. You were trying to bring uh, that. That's true. That was very, that you, land, yeah, well remembered, actually. Yeah. So that was really, that might have been even been before I'd had a hit record, I suspect. Oh, ah, yeah. That might have been before Numero Uno where, yeah, and he's right. Um I'd worked with Smith and Mighty in Bristol, and then I became aware of this record, Wishing on a Star by Fresh Four, and I remember playing it to Tim Palmer, going, I think this could be a big record. His view on that was like, that's not a good vocal performance, is it, though, Nick? And I'm like, well, it's not brilliant, but there's some magic in the record. It's It, it kind of works. Mm. And Tim was like, I'm not, I'm not putting this record out because it's, it's, it's just not... You know, it's it's not a strong enough vocal. I'm like, but sometimes there's records that don't have a traditionally strong vocal, but they somehow have man, man magic in the grooves. And yeah, and, and, and in the, on that one, he was like, no, we're not. You know, basically, we're not going to do it. And we didn't do it, and it went on to be a big hit. <laughs> so you know, it's one of those. But that, this all goes with the territory, man. Swings and roundabouts, yeah, man. Swings yeah. and roundabouts. Yeah. I want to bring Andy in at this point. I know that Nick, this is all about you, but we've got an opportunity here. And so while you know you you guys had uh, were seeing less of each other, you know, you, you Nick, you were busy having hits and being incredibly successful now in, in London. Uh, Andy, you were in Bristol, and you were quietly. Being very successful too, you'd hooked up with Jeff Barrow and become Portishead's DJ, and you were in this really interesting period for Bristol music with you Indeed. know Massive Attack and Portishead and Tricky all happening, yep. and you were in that lovely melting pot, weren't you? It was uh, it was a great time to be uh, yeah involved in the whole Portishead project at that, at that time. Yeah, I mean I'd known Jeff uh, a fair few years before the album came out, and and I'd been feeding him samples because I, I used to find all the samples because he had a, a sampler in his room in, in his mum's house and the, the, the Massive Attack guys had, had given him actually an, an Atari computer but he didn't really have anything to sample he was sampling his sister's Grease album with the break in it <laughs> so I was bringing along loads of you know, it's a good job he didn't stick, yeah, just yeah. stick that out or yeah. all the time or history might have been quite God, well, might God, have been yeah. quite different thank God you well, came well, along Della Soul did use it so fair enough oh, okay. but, um, uh, yeah so I, I, I was just big record collector and DJ at the time and I met him when I was DJing in the youth club in Portshead and um, he was the only guy that was really into what I was playing and, and I used to take him crates of records and say do you, do you know this do you know that have you ever read that and he'd take these uh, samples and, and weave them into his you know his uh, delights that, that eventually became the first album which which was you know about three or four years later on, but then even then he said well you know he was always when, when I do this project and, it's, and it does really well 
you know, you, you can you can warm up for us on the tours, and you know, uh, <laughs> and true to his word, when it happened, the album got big, and he's like, yeah, you can be the warm up DJ, and then all these people, because because DJ culture was massive then, all these clubs were were uh, asking if there was a what was a DJ that could d- play in the club, and Jeff didn't want to do that. He's well, you can you can do that. You know, the radio one essential mix. Well, well, Andy will do that. You know, so I did that, and I I, I was working in HMV at the time, and they, I had calls into HMV taking bookings for gigs because they knew I worked in HMV in Bristol <laughs> and, and then you know my career just kind of escalated from, from there really and just and I've sort of done for the last 23 years is be a DJ which is uh, which is a dream come true for Fantastic. me Fantastic and that, and that must have warmed your heart Nick in yeah. London seeing your, seeing your mate do so well Oh it was brilliant and that was kind of where our, our friendship reconnected because yeah. now you know there was a point where you know I was flying to New York and doing all this stuff and Andy kind of had a, a more sort of dare, dare I say it normal kind of life uh, you oh know, for a while I was for, working in an office in yeah. Bristol for a, a long time yeah. yeah but then Andy then starts to be in the end you know he, he's I'm DJing in yeah, London you he, want to come down yeah you know and then and then and, and traveling and, and yeah. all of that and so actually our lifestyles then were kind of a little bit more comparable again we had a bit mm. more kind of a few more crossover points and, yeah. and then yeah kind of reconnected uh, yeah it's lovely <laughs> So back to you, Nick, and, mm. and so you you're now at a at a situation where you have uh, you've signed the prodigy, mm. and they are they are getting big. Yeah, and um, you are now, and you're in. The, you, you've made XL into an overground record label rather than an underground one, and yeah, so correct. inevitably, because again, there's there's money in in music at that time, especially in electronic and dance music. Yeah, you then got sniffed at by one of the majors, correct, um, in order to set up what became known as Positive. Record. That, so, so, right. so, you know, there's a story there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, there'd been a, a couple of expressions of interest uh, from major labels, um, and uh, the EMI um, sort of uh, offer came in and proposal, which was really interesting. It was a guy called Clive Black, and he said, Nick, you know, I don't really know what you're doing there. I don't know what the genre stuff is and whether you're putting out what you call these records that you're doing. And I don't really care because I don't want it because EMI has no dance electronic business and I don't want to set up a rave label or a house label or whatever. I just want somebody who knows what they're doing to come in and do whatever they like, really, and we'll support you however much you need you need our support because um, we don't know what we're doing over here and we we desperately need somebody who does know what they're doing. So they didn't want to set up a label like Positiva. You said, you, uh, I think you should start up a label. They, they, just, they just said, come, come, come join us. What do you want to do? What can do you, you do? And how, and how can we help you right. to make it happen? Because we want to make stuff happen. So it was your idea to start Positiva. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and and yeah, it was you know it it wasn't like a blank checkbook exactly, but it was like we are one of the biggest major labels in the world. We'll throw the resources at this that need to be thrown at it to make it happen. If you show us, tell us, lead us in 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 you know in in how to make it happen. Just do your thing, Nick. Great opportunity. So so yeah. So I mean, I'd I'd had a few conversations, and in the end, I decided I'm, I'm I was going to embrace that opportunity, Eddie. And then the next chapter began. Obviously, you know, it meant unfortunately that I would I'd part company with Prod. I wouldn't be working with them, you know, day to day, whatever you. But 
you know, hey, you know, it's just sort of it was a, it was a it was a, it was an exciting opportunity and yeah, and I just for for a variety of reasons I decided to embrace it. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And 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 so you went there and so what would be your uh, just remind us of some of the records then that you were responsible for because there, there are a lot of earworms in that in that period. Yeah, so the, the the first record that put the label on the map massively was I like to move it by Real to Real which was signed without any competition can you believe that even at that point in electronic music history where there's a lot of exciting stuff happening that was Eric Murillo correct yeah Yeah. and nobody else it was coming in as an import from America and no other label wanted to sign it so everybody else had passed and Dave Lambert uh, who was kind of like my sort of right hand man if you like in that equation said yeah you know there's something in it Nick I think we should give it a go so we called up Strictly Rhythm and offered them a couple of grand two thousand dollars or something like that got UK most of Europe, it was like let's give it a go, you know, and and it just exploded, became a, such a smash everywhere. Huge, absolutely Huge. massive. So, record. Yeah, so that was interesting. The fact that there wasn't uh, that every other dance label had heard it and passed on it was interesting because because I you know there's a there's a message in that. It's like it just because other people are saying. It's not going to happen. Doesn't, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Sometimes you, you know. And how many positive uh, like twelves did you put out before that hit home? Uh, I reckon that might have been. I'm going to guess that we might have put out about sort of twelve so, singles. So you were desperately 13, 14. wanting a big hit to show the bosses that you knew what you was know going what? on. I wasn't. It wasn't desperate at that point. But you're glad. But, but 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 it could have. It could have got a bit uncomfortable if uh-huh. we'd. You know. It it, it was. It came along at the right time. Put it that sure. way. Fortunately, I wasn't desperate. But, right. but you know. But again, I wasn't desperate to have a hit record from the very get-go at Positiva. So we put out some cool records that could do some stuff. Set the path, and, and yeah. So there was I that. Just identified the brand. Yeah, as got the brand. You know, mm. obviously, I I designed the logo, the Positiva thing there, just in the same way that I designed the XL thing. Very basic, mm. very in your face. I'm not a designer. I've got very little artistic talent in in that area of design or whatever. So so those. Logos Logos are just like what what I could come up with that I thought you know Very effective would would, would would work and what would look good on a, on a shelf in a record mm. store of a twelve or, or it just on the on the in the hub of, yeah. a, of a record exactly you know it was yeah. just, and you were mm. I mean you didn't need the, the the internet was just start, you know it wasn't really no it wasn't, wasn't a thing, thing. Wasn't and, a thing. And, and thinking about like how you have to think now is which is uh, does it look good on a thumbnail <sighs> you actually you you nailed it <laughs> so, so yeah so yeah, the, yeah and, and then the other big hit Eddie. Uh, I'm going to play one of the, I've got one record in mind, but yeah, we had the the trance explosion, BBE, seven days and one week, and all of uh, you know. Flawless was one of yours, wasn't it? Uh, after after I left, actually, ah, that yeah. one, yeah. Um, but uh, and then we had you know Barbara Tucker, beautiful people, Alice DJ on the pop trance thing, Bucketheads. Bucketheads, um, the Bucketheads, my God, these Amazing. sounds, yeah, yeah, the, and that's the one. Actually, that is the one that I wanted to to play to oh. sum up my my Positiva era because uh, I because I love the record. It still, still resonates today, today yeah. and. and I th- 
and it samples Chicago Street Player, a record that we play, Andy, almost every time. On our reach-ups. On our reach-up club nights or festival things when we play together. I'm going to confess to you now that I hated that record. Did you? It came out. It just wound me up so much. Yeah, Ah, And and you know how you always hear it? You always hear your own lyrics. Hmm. I thought that they were saying, I thought she was saying cheese time. I thought she was going, cheese time, cheese, 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 cheese time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, it just was everywhere. It, it was, was absolutely everywhere. everywhere. So, yeah, it was your fault, Nick. All right. It really got into my head, that one, but not in a good way. But let's, uh, let's, 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 let's remind. Let's hear it anyway. Let's, yeah, let's, exactly. Cheese let's, let's time. Remind. Yeah, let's hear cheese time. Trailblazers. Bucketheads, the bomb, as chosen by and as signed by and steered by Nick Hawks, who is our trailblazer, as well as, uh, as well, he, actually, he's our trailblazer and not our co-host, because uh, my co-host is DJ Andy Smith, who <laughs> happens to be Nick's best mate. <laughs> I, think, I think it's, it's a wonderful... It worked out, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's worked out very nicely. <laughs> so, so let's... let's t- um, let's talk about, I guess, your exit from Positiva. But before okay. then, mm. we talked about the, uh, you know, the, the big sort of era defining and uh, occasionally, to my mind, irritating. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Ed. T- t- <laughs> for Positiva. But it wasn't all bad. On, on, which, note, on which note, funnily enough, only yesterday I was on my way to an event in the um, in, sort of in the city of London and uh, there was a bit of renovation work going on and there was a, a note by the, the sort of like uh, steps. It was a monument tube station I think and it was like a a poster and it said I like to move it move it Robert McAlpine and (laughs) and, and it was it was like suggesting that there was renovation you know there was renovation work going on and so you know the tune still resonates it it lives on I mean it was only last night that must have made you laugh you're definitely part of popular culture now (laughs) so um, so I was about to say it wasn't all bad uh, no (laughs) because you brought you know one of my favourite drum and bass artists and one of my favourite human beings Adam F., our mutual friend. Yeah, that's uh, right. You brought Adam F. into Positiva. Yes. I mean, that's such an unlikely surprise, isn't it, to bring a drum and bass star like that to, a, to what the, was a real house label? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was keen to find stuff that could sell albums, really. Um, and, you know, having a succession of hit singles there uh, was great. I mean, Real to Real had actually had a gold album, so we'd, that had been kind of a pretty good result. But, you know, you, you want to spread your wings and you want success as singles and albums. I thought Adam, you know, just added added more depth to the label. And of course, the, the drum and bass, you know, scene was really quite exciting at that point. You had... Let's have a think. Alex Reese was doing maybe signed to Ireland. You probably signed to Ireland, yeah. Ronnie Size would have been, you know, kind of coming through, um, and it was a vi- it was a vibrant, air, an interesting, exciting area of, of of sort of electronic music culture. And I thought, yeah, let's let's address this at, at Positiva. Why not? Because this is where there's heat and excitement. You tried it with hip hop as well, didn't you? 
Uh, yeah, that didn't work out so well, did I it? I know you say that, but the seven inch uh, of uh, that hooligans uh, track is £50, so yeah. it could work somewhere. <laughs> I did. So that's right. We signed a, a rap act called Hooligans from Tommy Boy. Um, and uh, yeah, that didn't really didn't happen but yes you know but unless you've got a box of the seven inches still I I wish I had I wish I had but yeah but so an Adam funnily enough so I I was aware of let's think I was aware of circles so that was about on um, you know on a small independent so and and um, yeah I think that was what kind of got me interested and I'd heard a couple of other things that Adam had done was that the Uh, same mix you put out that was on the 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 release before, was it? Or did you uh, change it? It didn't really change much, no. no. I think it was pretty much the same thing. And then, obviously, the, the key thing with Adam was just figuring out, is this guy who's just lucked out and, and can make one or two good singles, or is he a real artist? And I actually went round to his house, and there's a track on the album, you might remember, that Tracy Thorne vocaled, yes. called The Tree Knows Everything. Um, and uh, I was in Adam's studio, and he was playing me various sort of rinse out type you know D&B tracks like, yeah. it's good it's good and he goes oh I've got this other idea and he basically starts playing the key you know the chord pattern and starts singing the you know the sort of top line and I'm like oh, okay he's a proper musician <laughs> this guy's got a little bit more than just you know a bag of beats um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so yeah that was when I was like okay yeah, this is this is a bit more interesting, and that was probably the moment when I thought, yeah, we we'll offer album and Adam for offer offer Adam an album firm deal, and and which we did, and of course, and that was the the Colors album, which won the Mobo Album of the Year award, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And then that went on. He he then sort of furthered his relationship with EMI, didn't he? And, and had mm. that chaos, that anti-acoustic warfare that you mentioned, yeah. hip hop. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Was, a, yeah, that yeah. was an amazingly boombastic yeah. kind of uh, late nineties, early noughties, was yeah. it? Kind yeah, yeah. Of- yeah, he embraced, you know, he's a t- very talented guy and he can make records across a, a broad spectrum and obviously he's made some, you know, some ima- amazing hip-hop records and some amazing D&B records and some other, you know, been involved in some in some other, you know, stuff. Um, so, yeah, he's a, he's a talent, you know. I mean, I also ended up managing Adam later down the line and, uh, you know, I mean... It's sort of he's a talented guy he's a talented guy but you know sometimes I might have wanted to throttle him but <laughs> yeah, I, feel, I feel as though you're pulling you're pulling your punches here I feel as though you want to say something but you but but, poli- but the Look, politician in you some some are the... some artists you 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 can almost end up screaming at them that like this is fine this sounds great you know the record's good let's go and I have to be honest and you know Adam was one of those artists where I would scream at him and go, you usually are fine. honest isn't it? <laughs> it's fine it's fine Adam let's go with it and he'd be like mm, I'm not sure yet no, you he's, know? One, he's like a tweaker yeah he's he's like, like, no, I, you know, I think I can a, I think, a real perfectionist yeah and he's like no I think I can you know maybe can make that 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 you know hi-hat a bit better or whatever oh, you know and then <laughs> so so you know and sometimes you roll with that and you know and sometimes it can be frustrating for a, like a record label guy or a, or a manager or what have you um, and you know every artist is different but he's a very talented guy and he's a good bloke in, yeah lovely guy really yeah. really talented uh, you know it's, it's funny how that can and that can happen in, in drum and bass drum and bass is such a, a complicated genre oh. like you know sonically yeah. the mix down as you know every drum and bass guy was the mix down is so important yes. and, and you often do get tweakers don't you that they're oh, just yeah. such perfectionists and really want to be in control of the, of the whole thing and that's know? fine it's fine to, to want your music output to be you know the very best that it can be there's a butt coming though 
But there comes a point where where the good ones, the ones that are going to have real success and really mean something and really make a you know a difference, they at a certain point sooner or later go, yeah. Uh, this record's coming out. It's going to come out. You've got to walk. You've got to know how to let go. Yes, you know, it's, it's learning to let go, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, Ra- rather than it's two years now. It's three. I mean, actually, mm. Jeff Barrow, our mutual friend. <laughs> I was thinking Jeff's. Yeah, Jeff's now he's a, he's a bit of a tweaker, hasn't he? He's, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. He's been known to spend an, a, a whole day on a on a snare. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but he's got plenty of time to do that. But you know what? I did also saw a, I saw a tweet from Jeff pointing out that you know his output is actually quite high these days across different artists that he's working with well beak is beak yeah yeah and and yeah. multiple you know and soundtrack stuff and yeah, yeah so yeah. so you know i think people perceive him as like the guy who just makes one album every 10 years or something <laughs> but actually he's he is finishing oh yeah you know I mean, he's he finishing likes to make records. music so i think he wants to keep busy doing and, projects that excite him yeah yeah but uh, but that's that's the key thing you know good artists you, you summed it up eddie they know when to go okay it's i could go on forever but i'm not going to go on forever I'm going to let this record come out and, and let's see how it does. And speaking of uh, walking away, mm. what, so how did your relationship with Positiva come to an end then? And what did you do after that? Yeah, yeah. So I was um, becoming sort of more entrepreneurial uh, and, you know, kind of developing more of an interest now at this era to to be involved in music publishing and with a little bit of an eye and maybe managing artists, not just being a, a record label guy. Um, and in a big organisation like EMI, that kind of, you know, sort of um, approach can be a little bit difficult for them, was a bit difficult for them to handle at the time. And I had one conversation with the CEO about acquiring publishing rights and his view was something along the lines of, you know, we've got the records division and that's you guys and then there's the publishing division and if you find something where publishing is available, you should tip off the publishing division. Yeah. And I'm like, and that's it. And and I'm like, (laughs) but that's it? Sort of thing. Like, yeah. So like, you know, I mean, kind of what's in it for me? Not much. Or, you know, really, or maybe nothing. Um, So I was like, "Mm," you know. So I, I I was interested in in, 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 in was, was this because you thought the music industry was changing at this point? Could you see what was going to come further down the line? Uh, I, I couldn't see the... I didn't predict the the severity of the downturn, oh. really. Um, but I did have a feeling that just living by recorded music income alone wasn't the smartest thing. Okay. And I think EMI, they'd had rising profits year on year on year. And I think the view there was... Living by the, the 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 you know the profits of recorded music income is just fine, mm. you know. So keep doing it, Nick, and that's cool. You don't need to be managing people or publishing or whatever, you know. So you're perhaps seeing the future, really. Yeah, slightly, slightly. Um, and uh, you know, so yeah, I kind of and you know, there was a few bumps within that organisation. It's a big corporate thing, and I, you know, there's occasions where I wanted to do things in a in my way, and maybe somebody else would disagree for whatever reason. It kind of Got a little bit annoying, so um, so yeah. Basically, what happened was I was approached by a guy called uh, Matt Jagger um, to see if I was interested in starting a, a, a new business with backing um, by Ministry of Sound. So Matt was in at, at Ministry, revolutionising their activities. 
Um, and I suppose it was it was kind of comparable in a way to almost like when I went into positive. It's like Nick, just you know, you know, do some stuff. Yes, do do publishing. Sure, do artist manager, do record, whatever. We're here. We'll back you. And um, you know, hey, just let's let's be as be as free as you want to to do what you want across all platforms and we'll we'll back you financially and structurally etc and it just felt it was like it was still was a pretty buoyant time you know so i was like i'm pretty sure that if i slide across into that i can keep a bit of success rolling so yeah that took my fancy and then that was that was the that was um, an offer that i accepted and then um incentive came into place so essentially new record label incentive similar you know kind of graphic perspective if you like to both xl and positiva where a very bold clear kind of graphic you know agenda which i'd come up with and jaffa from the unknown partnership had delivered expertly and yeah we were into a new zone of of making new new stuff happen and what would be uh, what would be the record that that would soundtrack that time? Yeah, um, I think I'm going to uh, pick uh, "Liberation" by Matt Dairy because it was the one that it was the first release um, on Incentive, and I remember I was away on holiday. I was in uh, Mykonos, and uh, the, the, the you know there's there's a funnily enough there is a, a, a liberation when you move away from a board that has like twelve forthcoming releases and all sorts of stuff to deal with and budgets and all kind of stuff. Like, And then you just go and you have a bit of a blank piece of paper. It's like, hey, sign some records. It's quite exciting. Um, and um, I remember being in, yeah, I was on holiday in Greece. I still didn't have the, the name sorted for the label. We didn't yet have an office space so we didn't, there was still an office to be or sorted out and literally myself and Craig Demek went in and built the desks you know with spanners <laughs> and stuff that we'd got from Ikea or whatever um, but we had offer but Matt trusted me enough him Graham Gold and um, and um, you know it, it, the the, the um, yeah yeah so so they um and Giles, who's the, the partner in Good Hours, which is the original label that, that this appeared on, they trusted me enough to go, yeah, you're signing something new, you know what you're doing, you know, we'll trust you, go ahead and do it. And so so we signed signed the record, then built the desks, got into the office, <laughs> put it out, and it went top 20. <laughs> yeah, normally people do it the other way around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, you got, you got to get on with it at the end of the Crack on. Okay, well, let's crack on ourselves. Matt Derry, a liberation, as signed by uh, Nick Hawks. Trailblazers. So Nick Hawks in trance shocker. Well, you, you well, no, it's not that shocking because, of course, on Positiva we had some big trance records as Actually, well. Yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, but it was a yeah, just a continuation of of like that's what big records sounded like, I suppose, at that time. You know, um, um, and yeah, I mean, obviously, we this was, I suppose, it was Super Club era. You know, I'd I'd signed um, Jeremy Healy to an Amos to Positiva. And 
there were, you know, there was a lot of heat in this gate crash. We talked about it on the Paul Van Dyke episode. Yes. A lot of heat in the sort of uh, gate crasher and cream area. Um, and... Um, and that, and that scene gave us the the next few records. You know, Liberation kind of put us on the map, showed that we could have a top twenty. Which um, must have been uh, great for your first release. I mean, oh, amazing. mate! If you think that was great, oh. I mean, the next three <laughs> all went in top ten. Can okay. you believe that? Well, wow! Yeah. So so basically, that's right. It was Matt Dairy was the first one, and then we had Mario Pugh Communication. Um, Joey Negro must be the music, um, and Highgate pitching, and so like bam, bam, bam. Three. Do you think those would have done as well if they'd have been come out in positiva? I think they would have probably been done about the same. Actually, I don't think. Difficult that, to tell. I I d- yeah, I don't think they just would. Just the fact that it was a new label where people are like, interested. Because well, it was in, it's a double-edged sword. You. you could say it was a good thing because it was new yeah. and exciting as a new label, or you could say, "Hold on, yeah, yeah you yeah. got it." But we, you know, I put it this way: when when any of these when these records came out, certainly Mario Pugh at number five, Joey Negro at whatever it was seven, and I don't know where Pitching was six or something, um, four. I don't know, can't remember. Um, you know, I didn't think on any of them. God, these records would be doing much better if they're on Positiva. I was just right. thinking, wow, we're, just we're happy it was rolling. Wow, yeah. we're, we're smashing it. <laughs> you know, that sort of underground dance record. You can't really do any better than top ten. That's absolutely amazing. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, and um, and it was, it was lovely the way that some of those records sort of fell into place. Really, you know. So the Joey Negro record, I'd I'd promoted records that Dave Lee, who is Joey Negro, had. Remember, he used to run Republic. So when we talked before about phase two reach in and turntable orchestra these were records that david signed to his record label and put out mm-hmm. and i promoted them as a yeah. kid whatever just getting into the industry and now i was signing you know involved in dave as an artist that was nice and it was and subliminal you know we're in the mix eric murillo's label strictly rhythm so this was all connecting the, the dots if you like um the the mario Pugh communication record uh was uh, on media originally and when i used to live in um exmouth market i don't know whether we mentioned this the media records studio was in the basement of the of the the the, the, the flats that i used to live in <laughs> just my chance well, um, and uh, uh, so, so I was at XL at that point, but then sometimes I'd go down a couple of flights of stairs, and I would find Stu Allen or somebody just sort of kicking around in the, or some Italian DJ with boxes of records, kind of in the the sort of hallway. And I'm like, oh. Dan- hello, Daniele. Yeah, I was like, well, this is a bit odd. And then uh, you know, so Peter Pritchard, who ran uh, media in the UK, was was. He he'd signed the Mario Pew communication off him, and then and then finally, just in terms of this little set of, of initial incentive stuff, then there was the Highgate pitching record, which I'd heard Judge Jules play on the radio, and then I was at Turnmills once, and Jules was DJing, and he played the record, and I was like, oh, it's that record again, you know, and I sort of kind of was in the DJ booth, and I was like, Jules, what's this record? I've heard you play this before. He's like, oh, I made this, and I'm going, oh, okay, well, when's it coming out? And he was like. No, I don't know. I haven't really got any plans for it. I'm like, really? I'm like, might you be up for signing this to this new label I'm running? And he was like, yeah, it could be. So 
that was lovely as well. So I was like, you know what, I'm really interested. He was like, yeah, well, let's do it then. You know, it's him and Paul Masterson. Um, so all these sort of things were all tied together. been in together. the right place at the right time. Right yeah. place, right time and whatever, you know. Yes, yes. So, well, we've, we've, tr- we've talked through your, your Midas touch, Nick, and your, and your involvement in, you know, these, these youth cultures in, in, uh, in electronic music. Yeah. And th- I guess we've, we've gone through, through the noughties now. Yeah. And, um, and of course, at that time you had, there was this really interesting culture that you hadn't become involved with yet, but you were going to. Yeah. And it was like this post-UK garage scene called mm. Sublo. Mm. And then that turned into like these... I guess these um, a lot of kids that were like stoner kids in Croydon uh, one of whom I, I think had a famous drum and bass uh, drum and bass brother or something like that and and, and they they basically took like that post UK garage kind of and, and drum and bass bass line thing yeah. put it onto the half beat because they were all so stoned and then invented dubstep they did and, and I was pretty much blissfully unaware of most of that going on I'll be honest with I wasn't the guy down at you know in that basement you know where there was only 50 people and scream was turning up with its new dub plate and I wasn't there where did you find out about it then what Oh, well, you know, I just, I kind of, the, the dubstep scene had been sort of floating around and I was, I just hadn't really heard much that excited me. I was kind of like aware of it, but it just, the penny hadn't right. dropped, hadn't dropped. So I suppose the point where the penny, there was finally dropped, I think it must have been 2009. And there's a thing called, um, Winter Music Conference historically that happened in Miami yeah. around about March. And, mm. you know, and I'd been there a few times when I, I was running Positiva and it's like a conference convention thing whatever and then I'd stopped going there because I thought I just can't justify the cost of going to Miami very nice hang about by the pool and what have you we never went to that together I, I no. played that once have or you? twice but we never went I didn't know time. that ah, no no we weren't there at the same time that's right um, uh, but I and then I came back and I'll have had a nice time and had some cocktails by the pool or whatever but like <laughs> hadn't really done any business stuff and then I'm like oh my god you know it costs you know spent a couple of grand because it's desperately expensive and all that but I think for whatever reason in in 2009 I hadn't been for five years or six years and I thought I'm actually going to go again and I'm going to just give it a go and and, and just show me face and you never know and at the airport on the way uh, out um, in the departures lounge the chance meeting coming up (laughs) (laughs) you know me so well and so in front of me in the queue was Benga actually who I'd never met but I recognised him vaguely we got chatting and but I didn't I kind of vaguely knew what dubstep was a bit Kind of new, um, but again, like Penny hadn't dropped anyway. So I'm getting chance to Banger, and he's oh, you know, I'm playing at this thing, whatever. Okay, fine. So basically, then I go to actually, it was me and Adam F. I think went to a dubstep night. Um, well, actually, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was built, there was more hype on the scene by now, actually, come to think of it. So yeah. I was more aware, but still hadn't had a penny drop moment. And then myself and Adam went to this club night that I think Scream and Banger were, were playing at, and I, and I went, wow. This is fucking good. Um, you know, and kids were going mad and, you know, and it was like 140 BPM and there was energy and there was all of these kind of dirty bass sounds. And, and I saw it in, in, in an appropriate setting and just went, this is great. I kind of want to be part of this because this is really exciting. Now it all makes sense to me. Um, so I rung up 
Liam from Atlanta Airport on the way home because we'd been we had the Invaders Must Die uh, record out, and I'd essentially you know been involved, uh, kind of you know helping A and R, whatever, getting all that together. Um, and I said, now we should let's get a, a dubstep remix on on something the time's right you know was he into dubstep at that point he was aware of it like I was yeah Yeah. Um, and um, yeah he got he he was aware of it he got I think it was Casper the first time I ever saw a dubstep DJ was I think it was on the Prodigy World Tour sorry not World Tour the uh, the Greatest Hits Tour very shortly after that because I was the support act as you know for that Mm. Greatest Hits Mm. Prodigy Tour I'm sure that on I think the Brixton Academy days that Casper Casper played before I did that's right that's right he did and I think anyway let's Let's, let's we'll, we'll move forward to that. But anyway, so I said, and then I said to Liam, "Yeah, let's get Benga to remix, um, w- uh, you know, a track, which he did." Um, and then that came out, um, and it was great. And then at this point, Casper had been kind of doing his own thing, everything, you know, running the label, DJing, dealing with press inquiries, and he was up to his eyeballs, you know, in emails and whatever you. And so he was starting to think, oh, "I need some help here, man," you know, like. I'm drowning in this. And he asked Benga, like, do you know anybody who might be a good manager or whatever? And then Benga said, funnily enough, I met this guy just like a couple of weeks ago or whatever. I went in on the way to Miami. It's Nick guy, I think, you know, and I did this prodigy mix for him and I think he might be pretty, he might be good. But were you uh, managing any other artists at this point? Uh... Let's have a think. Uh, I I probably was. I can't remember exact the exact thing of it, but I probably had a right, couple so of bits. You were in the game. I was in the game as a manager, but maybe without without you know a sort of big explosive talent, right. perhaps. Um, and and then uh, I think Casper. Uh, spoke to the fabric guys he goes to them do you know this guy Nick Hawks Benga said and they were like yeah he could be good so he'd had a couple of references almost and he called me up and said have you got you know time for a meeting um, you know and got together and he played me some stuff he said I wonder if you might be interested in sort of managing me basically and I said yeah it, I would I'd, I'd love to in that meeting with mm. him because I was like yeah I get it I get your music I get what's going on I've seen it I'm like Gary I'm not the dub I'm not a dubstep expert mate so I'm not the right guy if if you know for you know um you you want advice about the real specifics of dub, dubstep he's like mate I I don't need that from you, you. That I, covered. Yeah, yeah 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 I know I need you to to tell me about like and help me with like the stuff I don't that I don't understand all that I'm Industry done. Stuff, yeah, 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 and, and the bigger picture. And, yeah, I'm, yeah. and I'm like, well, yeah, man, I'm, I, obviously I can I can do that and I'd love to. And pretty much we shook hands there and then and, and that became the start of me managing Casper. Um, and, and that was a fantastic uh, journey because... A dubstep then was exploding, and and then I mean it was so such a great period. Then it, it got to the point where for Casper there was so much excitement. Literally, it would be you know on on this day on this Saturday in two months' time. Do you want to be playing in you know Ghent or Sheffield or Madrid or Romania? And, and then yeah, the yeah. next night it's Romania or Atlanta <laughs> yeah. or or whatever you know or oslo and and it was it was brilliant man and 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 it was you know and it was it was the second it was like the second 140 bpm kind of wave because i'd obviously 
been at the heart of the whole rave explosion, hard-edged, 140 BPM, you know, exciting, explosive music, and here I was again, exciting, explosive, hard-edged music. But on, but on the half beat. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I loved it. Yeah, and and what a tune to uh, what to soundtrack this mm. this incredible. It was such a vibey time in in UK kind of dance music culture. Oh yeah, and, I mean, and it spread. You know, they, like you had Oris J in Sheffield, yep. and and things were starting to happen in 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 America with it. Well, well, the whole, the thing that was most exciting for me was the way that that was the global pickup of of dubstep. I mean, the the record we're about to play, I saw it smash it in 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 LA I saw it in Moscow uh, well, we had we had one memorable trip to to Kazakhstan I mean a, a, a DJ <laughs> offer for for Casper in Kazakhstan came in and we're like that's interesting was there horse milk on the rider that's what I want to know <laughs> I well Gary and I actually tried fermented yak's milk and <laughs> fermented horse's milk in a yurt um, on the on the outskirts of Almaty on the Sunday afternoon after the gig. It was fucking disgusting. <laughs> it's the most foul tasting stuff you've ta- you've yeah. ever had in your life. It's horrible. But yeah, ferment the fermented milk thing. Yeah, we gave that a go. It was it was it was it was pretty raw. <laughs> okay, um, well, let's let's but, try and erase that memory. Let's try but, and erase but, but that. this this tune, though, man. Yeah, this in, in, in from from Kazakhstan to LA and all points in between. This this was the one that that you know. Soundtrack that uh, era. It's um, it's TC. Where's my money? It's the Casper remix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, uh, this, I love this tune so much, and I'm so glad we're playing it because I'm old mates with Tom Caswell, TC. Mm. You know, and I mm. think he's one of the most underrated drum and bass producers mm. that could have gone mm. as big as Pendulum or Subfocus mm. or all these guys. He's just quietly got on with his thing. Actually, in your territory, he's a he's a Bath boy, isn't is, he? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he's a Bristol or a Bath okay. boy. Tom Caswell, absolutely. Yeah, Bristol. He's he's totally. Bristol drum and bass, yeah. And this cast, this is one of those kind of zeitgeist finger on the pulse moments, wasn't it? Casper's yeah. remix of TC, "Where's My Money," and it got picked up by Channel Four for the people like you know people who don't know this tune might know it as the theme tune to Phone Shop. That Phone, Phone Jack was it? Uh, no, Phone Shop. Oh, was it called yeah, Phone Shop? Phone Shop. Oh, yeah, okay. it was, uh, Phone Jack was a different thing. That oh, was uh, an Iranian comedian. Oh, right. So uh, yeah, the Phone Shop, which is just a really funny situation comedy ah. based near Croydon in, ah, in South right, London. Right, 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 right. And absolutely brilliant. So yeah, uh, that's gonna. This is gonna. Just think it's just gonna make me want to uh, go on more four or whatever it is, and <laughs> and, uh, and watch those again. Okay. TC, where's my money? The Casper remix. Trailblazers. Where's my money? <laughs> So, uh, what a what a moment! Um, dubstep, it came, it conquered, and it then did. it just fizzled. It fizzled out, oh. but produced some really, some fantastic producers who then went on to go down the disco road or the techno road or that kind of post dubstep, uh, very interesting thing. And, and I, I don't want to sort of get into the wormhole of why that yeah. all happened because then we're going to end up just talking about Skrillex for an hour. Mm. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, this is about you, Nick. So let's let's now get in 
into how you kind of segued from a, a record company A&R guy and a mm. label owner and a publisher yeah. Yeah. to what we know and love you as now, which is mm. an artist manager and mm. how you re-engaged mm. with the prodigy. Now, how did you how did you end up managing Liam Howlett? Because you you signed him, yes. you A&R'd him, but yeah. you'd never managed him. That, that's right. So, yeah, so basically the re-engagement with Prod came in 2005. Um, so, uh, and then I'd had this quite a bit, you know, there's a gap of not really seeing the guys and you don't when you sort of move away from working with somebody from day to day um you know you can still have a great relationship but you you it's you you just see that person less and less a bit like we talked about andy yep. never fell out did we no, but, but we no. just it might have gone just, months and months of not yeah not talking not communicating and it was a bit like that with with prod as i was running positiva and doing all this and building you know an incentive and and then i went to uh, a gig at brixton academy um uh and uh, hadn't seen the guys for a while and they'd um recently uh, parted company with XL actually and then yeah I was just in the dressing room backstage saying hi and Liam gave me oh, actually do you fancy I listen to this do you mind if I send you a couple of tracks and I was like yeah yeah sure and, yeah what do you reckon on that I'm like oh this 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 and yeah yeah what do you think about this one yeah maybe that okay cool 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 you know and then it was that conversation then that that basically um, meant that I was offered the chance to essentially be like a consultant on what became Invaders Must Die, A&R-wise. Um, and then, yeah, I guess across a period of time, it morphed into um, a management role. And then, yeah, you know, we had the Day Is My Enemy record, and obviously now we're off the back of No Tourists. And so been working with Liam and the guys, you know, for many years. So how does the new version of The Prodigy differ from the earlier version of The Prodigy? Or Liam? You know what? Not that different. Okay. No, no. I mean, it's pretty much, it's pretty similar in that we we kind of, when I started working with them again in the run-up to what became Invaders, it was just like, hitting the ground running it was just like it was very similar to what it was when I was working with Liam and the guys at XL just kind of picked up where we left off some years before really it's this you is know that, is that Liam's work, work ethic his work his work yeah. ethic is fantastic he's always you know open to to you know sort of um well he wants to 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 always deliver excellent you know Stuff, whatever that is, whether it's a yeah. video, or, it's obviously or, a good a good bond between you two. Like trust goes both ways. I'm sure. Yeah, it? it does, and we, you know, we, yeah, um, and we we seem to have developed a a great way of working where you know I'm I'm certainly like I said before actually I'm very respectful of the fact that look you know the artist will is is the ultimate decision maker and you know Liam will will call it as he sees it and and you know I. I, you know, my my role is to with any artist that I work with is to provide advice and guidance and thoughts and all the rest of it. But I know that not all of that will be taken on board, and it'll be sometimes it'll be like, yeah, that's a good idea, and sometimes it'll be like, nope, no, not not doing that. Fine, you know, and yeah, it's just you know you do develop a a great understanding with with artists, and sometimes they can there's almost like a shorthand of ways of addressing problems, or sometimes instinctively you just know that this is going to be right or that's going to be wrong or and, and, and these things develop across many years and that's one of the great advantages if you're working with an artist for a long time hmm. you really start to have a great feel for yeah. you know how to 
how to get the best out of the relationship, I think. To make things work, yeah. Yes, and, and speaking of, of re-engaging, you not only in this period re-engage with the prodigy, but you re-engage with your old pal Portishead's DJ and the man who's present, co-presenting this, Andy yeah. Smith. Indeed. Well, I've had a, I've had a few sort of reconnections. you know. it's it's Again, it's something that's happened through my life. I mean, an, another one was, was there was the sort of rebirth, if you like, of of kicks like a mule for a minute when the yeah. klaxons covered yes. the bouncer. So then uh, myself and Rich did some new music and, you know, some remixes and stuff like that together. And, and that was an interesting moment that opened the door for us to DJ at Bestival and and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and there have been some other reconnections. What other ones are there? Well, for example, my friend Shadow Child, um, who was Dave Spoon before that, um, I kind of started connecting... Funny story with him. I started reconnected, connecting with him during the sort of incentive as a record label kind of phase. And he was somebody that sent me his first demo that he made when he was a school kid, made it in the sort of music room when he was 15, sent it to me at XL. And uh, I sent him a little note back going, like, not quite, but keep at it. And then ended up co-producing a Wiley record with him, for example, you know, years later. Um, and then he's played at our Reach Up stuff. He yes. played, yeah. played yeah. for us at Bestival, didn't he? Uh, yes. Yeah. And he very kindly had us on his uh, Rinse FM show That's to, right. to, to pick up Trailblazer. Yeah, so it's all interconnected. But, but yeah, I guess mm-hmm. the, the, the reconnection with... With Andy was was I I'd made some of these records you know kind of I suppose my DJing in that sort of two sort of twenty ten eleven maybe kind of zone like the Hawks thing that was that was Hawks so H O R X so I'd made a few records and they were bassy you know records that that were you know doing a bit here and there and then I was DJing a little bit playing some dubstep and some sort of ravey breaksy stuff and did you not really enjoy DJing like, on your own I think you said well it, I did for a bit um and then uh and I I had some amazing gigs and we I might have even played possibly before you at one point Eddie I did some of the prodigy warm up stuff oh, yeah. both in the UK and in Europe and and um yeah, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, you know, I know I was doing some other gigs, but but yeah, DJing on, I don't know what you think about this, Eddie, but DJing on your own, like if you find yourself just travelling on your own from London it's to... Quite a hard thing, to it for years. Hull or whatever, and then playing a gig and it's okay, maybe it's not a greatest gig, and then back to the okay hotel and what oh it wasn't the, that much fun mm. you, so you've done you've I've done just, tons I've of done that for 23 years so you know the feeling <laughs> you know that oh yeah it's definitely a different dynamic when you're doing it with your friends or people you know yeah, yeah when you've got a yeah a lot of traveling and hotel sound check gig meal hotel uh, it's, and then over days and days yeah it's, it's relentless yeah so so yeah so i i kind of decided to loosen up a bit and instead of you know I there was a period where I I didn't really embrace my musical kind of history so much as a DJ like I wouldn't play disc, disco or <laughs> funk or old records he was doing that I was doing that for you yeah he was doing that for a couple of decades um, um, but then but then yeah I just got to a point where you know what let's let's loosen up let's go out let's uh, I'll DJ with Andy let's play some 
records that we love that we grew up on um, and and we did that before the current resurgence in, in disco and we did and stuff. so we, we started did. that maybe six was six years ago doing stuff like that well seven. we did a night called 808 which is even before we did that. and then we, so we did a night called 808 and then and, and then Reach Up first came along and then uh, Chrissy Kybosh became part of the equation mm-hmm. and, and then you know yeah we just started doing little basement parties in Stoke Newington and um, having having some fun, and then it just the reach up thing that we do together just grows and grows. Grew, grew, grew. It's just a passion, doing it for the fun of it, doing it because we love it. And then over the years, it's 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 built up. And then in the so, summer we had well, incredible. yeah, the summer of summer of twenty eighteen has been a real high point, both in terms of reach up as a brand, if you want to call it, you know compilation album on BBE um, uh, this amazing bussy building residency that we that we talked about with Tom Middleton yeah uh, you know when he, he was saying how impressed he was by that night um, and then the whole festival thing happened for us this summer where you found myself and Andy playing back to back at Blue Dot um, festival festival Eastern six. Electrics festival number six you know whatever <laughs> and, and, we, and we we're up there as two guys who are you know not youngsters <laughs> <laughs> um, but playing the same records disco and boogie records that, 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 that we might have played in some cases the actual same, same piece physical of piece of vinyl <laughs> that we might have played as a as a 13 year old at a house party you know, um, in Porter's Head, and now here we are. I mean, I think the Blue Dot gig was the best one of the summer. So it's a massive, big top, and it was Ronnie Size Live, Uncle Live, and then myself and Andy <laughs> playing <laughs> Disco Boogie. And, <laughs> you till know, the end of the night. Till yeah. the end of the night, as, as reach up. You know. oh, perfect. You must have seen a lot of armpits that night. Yeah, it was lovely. Um, so uh, the record that you would choose to, to, to chronicle... That, this, that moment? This whole thing. Well, I basically, because the gigs started getting more and more uh, in, in, in numbers terms, um, and then we started getting the festivals and things like that, I kind of thought... Um, I need some new music that I can play at, at, at these events. So because we've got momentum and stuff's happening, I thought I need to make some records. So um, I... Uh, called up um, uh, Michael Gray, who with John Pern is full intention. And I'm like, hey, I've got like I've got this quite exciting thing going on, and we got this bussy building residency, and I got some festival stuff. And do you fancy making a a record? Um, and they're like, yeah, okay, we'll make a record. And I'd I'd kind of done um, you know a bit of co-writing um, already uh, to to kind of create this song, and then and then it was a case of um, Mike and John coming on board for to. To really to help the, it turn into a proper record, so so uh, this is a record that came out on a label called Midnight Riot, and uh, it's full intention and uh, Nick Reach Up, which is me, uh, featuring Jazz Morley. It's called Night of My Life. Trailblazers. Night of My Life. Uh, 
You're listening to Trailblazers with myself, Eddie Temple-Morris, and with Nick Hawks, who is our trailblazer, um, unusually and uh, almost <laughs> controversially this time. We've, and we've got and, and DJ Andy Smith, <laughs> uh, Porter says legendary DJ. And but Nick, before I ask you the last question, yeah. because we've got him here, yeah. you, men- you mentioned your, your reach-up compilation on yeah. BBE. Yeah. I got, because we've got him here, yeah. I've got to ask, mm. because I'm on record as saying my favourite mix albums Ever mm. Uh, mm. Liam's mm. Uh, um, yeah the yeah. Dirt Chamber session and Andy your document mm. number one I just think it's well, the you. most perfect <laughs> it's the most perfect mix album it's what every mix album kind of should be oh well thanks it's such a journey just can you just tell me a little bit about about how that came together and how you feel about it you know and well, <laughs> I, when I first met you I, I I turned up with a copy of that and a, <laughs> and a silver marker <laughs> said, you've got to sign this for me man I absolutely worship you, you. did I mean it's amazing to this day people still come up to me like, like yourself and do that and yet, even yesterday there was an Instagram post some guy had bought a copy of it in the middle of America somewhere you find it in a record shop and he was really happy and tagged me and it's like wow still to this day people are still excited about that uh, that compilation I mean it, the, the, it was different at the time because it, it was lots of different types of music mixed together which is what I used to do when I DJed in clubs I used to like lots of different stuff so that's what I did and it all came about because I was playing with Portishead in Boston uh, doing the warm-up as normal and uh, I got asked to do well you know somebody from the band can you come play on this radio station so I got asked to do a a set on a radio station called WFNX in Boston and um, yeah I went to the station and did my thing playing everything I was playing you know and I'd be cutting up the Beatles and playing you know current hip-hop Gangstar and then Jimi Hendrix would come in and I remember them coming into the studio and 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 then they said oh the the switchboard's going mad and I'm like oh sorry do you want me to stop (laughs) no no no, we love it we love it they're loving oh great you know because they'd been playing techno before I went on so I didn't know if what I was going to do was really kind of what they wanted but what actually happened FFRR which is the American label for Port said actually um, uh, recorded that and was sending out cassettes of that uh to, to, to the gigs where we were going to play to promote, yeah, to promote the yeah. Port Said gigs so, yeah. and then one of the uh, execs at, at uh, FFRR London in, in New York said you know can we do this as a, as a proper release and I'm like well yeah sure <laughs> you know this is great this this highlights me as, as, as me being a DJ rather than just the guy who's part of Port Said yeah. so that took me to a, a whole other level and, and you know it's why I've still got a DJ career and then I did subsequent ones after that but uh, yeah it was just a, a chronicle of what I used to do when I DJ and I think I used to take more risks than every, anybody else when I DJ I think because um, I just like lots of different music well, and I like to, to put day, it together you, 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 you DJ on 45s off the, off the seven uh, inch I, yeah, often, like, often I do 7 inch only gigs yeah, 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 yeah incredible take well, more with me there's then. a risk but, but, but thank you for that Nick uh, sorry um, uh, thank you for that uh, Andy so uh, so Nick I don't have to tell you what the last question is mm. you know very well mm. what, it's, the, it's the tune to save the world mm. if aliens if aliens mm. land and uh, I'm very interested to know what you would choose That's because, you know, su- <laughs> such, a, such a diverse uh, taste and career. So what's yeah, it going to be? Yeah, well, it's, uh, we haven't played any music by The Prodigy uh, on this show yet. So uh, sort of had to be done. This, this particular sort of programme wouldn't be complete without something uh, by The Prodigy. Uh, and I've picked Your Love, actually. Uh, and I've picked it because uh, at the time the record came out, I remember seeing incredible reactions uh, to it um, and it's kind of the true sort of raver's favourite I think of that of that era um, you know um, and and I've, I've also picked it because 
the, the Prodigy story, I think, is amazing. Uh, the XL story is amazing. My relationship with Liam and the band is is something I'm, I'm very proud of, and I, and I feel very fortunate to have to have experienced that and to to still be experiencing it. And um, yeah, I just uh, you know, it, uh, I, I guess I just thought that that this piece of music i suppose for me you know uh, makes me makes me feel good make, makes me feel good to be alive and and i've been you know sort of very blessed i, I think uh, to have to have maybe seen the things i've seen done the stuff i've done and so I'm, I'm hoping that the aliens might might kind of pick up a little bit of that positive experience when they hear this and go now we'll we'll blow something else up instead i think they'll definitely be able to with their incredible predator vision yeah. uh, see, you know see, see the positivity and feel the love radiates the, from you and, and obviously right. they will want to dance and yeah. if we can if we can slip them an, an e that, i think, I think <laughs> well it won't would... be me doing that will it eddie <laughs> well, obviously obviously not but if, yeah. if we you know in the in the interest of saving the world if yeah we, if, if the you know if they do come down and we get them dancing with yeah. the, your love by the prodigy be... if we slip them something that'll yeah. if they even have dopamine yeah uh that'll, that'll make them feel uh you know a, a, a little a bit warmth towards everyone that's around them i think that we've the actually got a chance we're think, in with a chance i think we're in with a chance trailblazers Originals. Trailblazers. Before we go, Andy, as Nick's, you know, bosom buddy that you've known since short shorts, you know, is there a is there a last is there a last question that you would want to ask him with with all of this incredible career in mind? Uh, what's next? That's what I would, I would like to know. What's oh, next on the Nick agenda? Not sure, really, mate. Just keep keep doing what I do. Really, is the plan at the moment. Just keep keep working with people that i that i believe in and and keep finding hopefully artist projects people that i who i enjoy communicating with keep learning you know who knows i mean i every day i, I try and learn something new and i do learn, learn something new i keep being grateful on a daily basis and just and, keep yeah. doing my thing and you've been doing a lot of conferences and stuff haven't you, you, you well, it's I, like teaching what you know yeah, and, and i do i do a few of those mind. things yeah i do a few of those things yeah. I, I you know sometimes do these guest talks at unis and colleges and what have you and and um yeah yeah I'll, i'm sure there'll be a bit more of, of that you know um I'm just going to keep keep yeah. doing it, keep doing what I enjoy, what I love, and keep hoping for the <laughs> well, best. I think. Thanks for the memories. Anyway, it's been great. It's oh, been a great man. ride, isn't it, man? Love you, man. Yeah, love, love you, too, man. man. Love you too, Eddie. Actually, cheers, Eddie. fine. I'm enjoying the moment. I'm enjoying the moment, like I did it where it, you know wheels turn full circle. I loved the moment where when where I when I was looking at the guy that signed the Prodigy and the guy that signed uh, Richard DJ, yeah. Richard uh, James Apex, Apex Twin. Yes. And, and and watching them, you know, have a moment and, and hug together. I was just yeah. like, oh, my God, I'm actually witnessing this. Yeah. This is happening. Well, I love it. There's a lot of love in the room. So please, <laughs> please send our love and respect to Liam. I will. And uh, see you for the next episode of Trailblazers. Catch you soon. Also, and DJ Andy Smith, thank you so much for joining oh, us. Thank you for having me on. It's been an honour. Thank you very much. Deezer, Deezer. Originals.